Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chevin. We are here, as always, to talk about stuff. This week on the show, busy show, our two main topics is we're going to talk about the latest Twin Peaks. Uh, As always. Another masterpiece. Yes, fantastic episode. Uh, We're going to talk about the game Sonic Mania in detail. Yeah. We mentioned it a little bit last time, but now we're going to dive into spoiler depth. And I'll say one thing about it right here. This is not a game you want spoiled if you haven't played it. Weirdly, more than like any narrative game this year... Sonic Mania is so chock full of surprises. Don't listen to us. Just go play it and then listen to us. Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of weird, cool gameplay twists yeah. uh, peppered all throughout that game yeah. that are best experienced uh, fresh. Unless you don't care about Sonic, and maybe we can make you care by talking about it. Yeah. But that's what that'll be I about. I think if there's one game that is going to get you to care and understand about uh, like original classic 2D Sonic games, mm-hmm. Sonic Mania is the one. Yeah, it's, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. That is a game I love immensely, even when I hate it. And that makes it feel like a proper Genesis game. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we will get into that. We also have some news, including our main news topic today is going to be the Super NES Classic uh, pre-order clusterfuck, as it's noted in our outline, which happened today, Tuesday. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to mention that, because I saw it go down in real time. It, It was a thing. It was fun to watch on the sidelines of someone... Who like is not that interested in getting one of those things and just is curious, like you know, to see the car wreck. Yeah, it it went as bad as it possibly could have gone. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and then we're gonna have some stuff and other things. But let's start with a couple pieces of housekeeping, Sean. All right. So this Monday, Halo episode five went up on YouTube. Yes, it did. Episode four went up on Friday. So there's been four and five since we last did a podcast. So that's the first half of Halo. You can watch all five of those episodes up on YouTube. Six through ten are still exclusive on Patreon. Ten dollars a month, you get all of that stuff. That's like a good three hours of content across those episodes. And I think the second five episodes are even better than the first five. Yeah. I'm also I'm, I'm just very excited that people can finally, like the larger public, can witness my flawless, no-death playthrough of Assault on the Control Room just went right through that level like a knife through hot butter. Assault on the Control Room is episode 5, so that's out now, and I have to say that might be my favorite episode of the series. It's, it's very good. It's a very fun one, and uh, was a challenge to edit, but a fun challenge, and you'll see why. Uh, so yeah, we get to see that, and then episode 6 is going to be public on Friday, and two more weeks of Halo stuff, and then we're going to move on to some other games, which we've already started shooting for, and those are turning out great. So, although there was a technical hiccup, you may or may not hear about it at some point. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's all fun stuff. Doctor Who, uh, our Doctor Who bonus podcast number one is going to be live today um, right, yeah. in our podcast feed. That's scheduled to go up. So while, when you're listening to this, that is live for the public. It's already been on Patreon for a full week. So if you listen to this and you like it, this is the episode where we talk about the first Doctor story, the Aztecs. It's about 45 minutes long. And if you like that, consider also our Patreon, because at the $5 level, you get that one early. And so yeah. it's, it's really good, and I, I think you're going to like that. And if you've never gotten into classic Doctor Who, this is for you. This is not like a deep dive in the sense of like for people who've seen all of classic Doctor Who. It's meant to be a guide through the series. Yes, so, so if you're totally new to classic Doctor Who, you're a fan of new Doctor Who, but have never like ventured into the depths of the old stuff... This is designed to be an entry point as well as just a sort of fun discussion about the episodes. Yeah. We're not going to make you watch Time in the Ronnie. Not yet. We're going to give you Tomb of the Cybermen. Yes. Good stuff. Which well, is- I, I haven't fully decided a Seventh Doctor episode okay. yet. So <laughs> let's not give me too many ideas, Jonathan, because you haven't seen Time in the Ronnie either. I watched the first five minutes the other day. And uh, boy, that's a, a good regeneration sequence. Yeah. Anyway, all right, so that's all our housekeeping stuff. Patreon.com slash Weekly Stuff Podcast. Sean, what stuff do you have going on? 
not a huge amount of stuff. It's mostly, um, you know, playing Sonic Mania. I'm still, I'm very close to finishing my, like, insane completion playthrough of Nier Automata now, like, my second go-through at that game. It's a very fun game to just relax to at this point now that I know all the story and, and that side of the game, and I can just totally relax and be like, even if I'm in, like, the part where the story is super fucking dark all the time, I can still kind of more relax and take my time and just be like, I'm just gonna you know, walk around and, 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 you know, enjoy the sights and, and do the side quests and stuff that I missed the first time through. So I've been doing that. Another thing I have been doing that I've been kind of doing for a week or two now, but I didn't feel like I had much to talk about about it yet, but I will soon, is I have been doing a rewatch of the first four seasons of Breaking Bad and then to finally get to the last fifth season of Breaking Bad because I had watched the first four seasons, because I had watched the first four seasons right when the fourth season finished airing which was a long time ago now, and I just kept on meaning to watch the fifth season and kept on putting it off, and then eventually I was just like, you know what, fuck it. I should, I should just actually do this because I also want to watch Better Call Saul at some point, and even though I know it's a prequel and everything, I still want to have finished Breaking Bad before watching Better Call and Saul. And you should. You, it, it, you should, I'll just say. Yeah, so, so I am almost at the end of season four in my rewatch, and so I'm almost into the new stuff of Breaking Bad. And it's a, new for you. New for me, yeah, right? Yeah, the five year old perspective. Yes, yeah. the 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 last, the fifth season of Breaking Bad, and it's a good TV show. It's a very good TV show. Yeah. The, it's really the fifth seasons because just remember that those aired a full year apart, and like first eight right. episodes of season five, and the second eight episodes, they're two like they were they they took a break in the writers' room. The, the episode eight is one hundred percent a season finale, so you've really got two mini seasons. Okay. Just, it will be jarring if you don't remember that going in. Is all I'm saying. But yeah, right. it's a good yeah. show. And I'm excited for you to watch Better Call Saul because it's an even better show. Yeah. I want to talk about it because it's so fucking good. And I think, I think you're going to love Better Call Saul. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to get to that yeah. stuff. But Bring Bad's a good show. Yes, it is. Uh, I rewatched all of that, I think. I got the Blu-ray set like last year and rewatched that. So last summer. It's a good show. Um, but yeah, I saw a movie this weekend that you I did. wanted to talk about briefly. I went to see Steven Soderbergh's new movie, Logan right. Lucky. And I'm a big Soderbergh fan. You know, he had not, uh, he quote-unquote retired from filmmaking in 2013, um, which really just meant he was going to go make a TV show for a couple years, which is the Cinemax show The Nick, which I still need to catch up on. But, um, you know, before that point, he had made, he made movies like every year. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that, because just as a critic, I would go see those movies every year, every six months or something, and just, even his most kind of off-kilter movies that, like, didn't quite work, I find him such an interesting filmmaker, and he always brings such, like, technical acumen to his films, and he has such an interesting eye for things. I just love Steven Soderbergh's movies, and Logan Lucky is the first one he's made since 2013, and it is so good, you guys. It is, my, my initial tweet was, this might be my favorite movie of the summer, hmm. and I might amend that, but it would be up there. It is... Uh, best described as sort of a heist movie um, in the vein of Soderbergh's own Ocean's 11, 12, 13. And right. I even make a joke midway through the movie. This is like Ocean's 7, 11 because it takes place in like the American South. Um, basically, they're robbing a NASCAR track. Okay. And it's just this movie, like I had the biggest fucking idiot smile on my face through this whole movie. Like on number one, you have the cast. It's Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, um... You've got uh, Riley Coe, who played the lead in the Girlfriend Experience TV show, which is based on the Soderbergh movie, and she's great. Um, 
Oh, there's so many other people in this movie that I'm now blanking on who all is in this film. Who's the fourth lead? Oh, fucking Daniel Craig. How okay. do I forget it? He's the best right, part. Yeah. He plays a uh, criminal who they use to basically... He's like their demolitions expert who is named Joe Bang. And it's Daniel Craig with bleached white hair and a ridiculous southern accent that sounds like Ernest P. Worrell. And I love it to death. And it's the most fun Daniel Craig has ever visibly had on screen. Like, I'm sure he has fun doing the James Bond movies, just James Bond isn't all that happy a person yes, in his he's, movies. He's, it's a very dour sort of character in his yeah. version most of the time. Yeah, so, and he looked really bored in Spectre. So watching him in this, it's just like, he clearly came to set every day so happy. And I love that about it. And Channing Tatum has such a great southern accent, and the fucking goatee and everything, and he's really good. And Adam Driver has... One of the best movie accents I've ever heard in that everything he says through that accent is funny, but not in a way where it ever feels like they're mocking Southern people. It's just an affectation that is very funny. Um, I love the whole character dynamics. It's a really, really entertaining heist movie in, in the same way as like Soderbergh is... Maybe the best person who's ever lived at doing these kind of movies, if you compare the Oceans movies and this and some of the other heist movies he's directed, of just the kind of guilt-free versions of these movies where you don't really have to worry about the morality of it, because they're always ripping off assholes, so who cares? Like, does anyone really care if they rip off NASCAR? No. No, not really. Not really, yeah. So, like, they're going to make the money back. It's okay. But yeah, so like it's it's guilt free. It's so fun. Like the, the heist comes together in just a really clever, smart way on a scripting level. But it's always clear, and the movie is always like maybe a step ahead of you, but not in a way where you feel like you're being ripped off by the movie. Just that you're excited to see where it goes next. But what really struck me the most about this film is that it also has a character based undercurrent that I think is richer than um, a lot of heist movies of this sort in that kind of Ocean's Eleven vein where. Like the relationship between Channing Tatum and his daughter in the movie who they found a great movie kid to play his daughter. There are some great scenes with her. It's just very sweet and extremely well observed. The relationship between the Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, and Riley Coe characters because they're all siblings. They're, they're, it's called Logan Lucky because they're just... the. Their family is the Logans, and they have, like, bad luck and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, all of that, I think, is tremendously well-observed. And just, there's a lot of quiet moments in the movie that are very good and emotional. Even though it's also an extremely funny and upbeat movie in a lot of it, it does take time to, like, make these characters feel three-dimensional and lived in. In a way that Steven Soderbergh can do very casually at this point. In just, he makes it look so easy. And I know it isn't, but he just... With his cinematography and his editing and his direction, of which he does all three under different pseudonyms, and then the script, who... it's This script seems like it's under a pseudonym, and it's probably written by Soderbergh's wife, but we don't know. Anyway, it's all extremely good, and I just cannot recommend this movie highly enough. I didn't even look how it did at the box office this weekend. There were other movies out, but this is uh, a great film to end the summer on if you just want another really, really fun movie, because this is a crowd-pleaser, and it's so good. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. If for no other reason than Daniel Craig in this movie is so screamingly funny. But everything about it is good. Cool. So, yeah, you should see that movie. It's made me want to dig out my Ocean's Eleven DVDs and go watch those films again. Because those were great. Awesome. the day. It's been a long time since those came out. (laughs) Yeah, it has, hasn't it? Jesus. Yeah, I think Ocean's Thirteen was 2007. So we're like 10 years past the end of that uh, trilogy. But yeah, uh, anyway, so with that in mind, I actually, I said, that was like maybe my favorite film of the summer. It made me think, you know, I think this has been a really good movie summer. Yeah. Like we've had a lot of good films. I haven't even caught up on some of the ones that have been out that I wanted to go see, like 
uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which, to be fair, no one saw, so I'm not alone on that. And some other films that I would have liked to have checked out. But I wanted to count down really quick the five movies I thought were best from this summer. Okay. Or specifically favorite. Right. Like, I could, best would be a different ranking. I think my favorite film of this summer was Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Okay. It was the first movie of this summer. It is still my favorite uh, that I think came out this summer. I actually just bought the Blu-ray today. And and I don't usually do that with new movies anymore, but I really love this movie. It has grown on me over time. I saw it twice in the theaters. Um, it might, at this point, be my favorite Marvel movie. It huh. really would. I, I think it's got weaknesses here and there that are, frankly, very common weaknesses for Marvel movies. But the strengths in terms of character and style and how it develops its themes cinematically... I think it's the best version of that Marvel has ever done, and maybe by a pretty wide margin if you look at, I think, how powerful the closing scene of that movie is, and that this is a movie that closes with a CGI tear running down a CGI raccoon's face, and I think it's one of the most effective emotional moments in the genre to date, and that's ridiculous, and it's part of why I love this movie. Like, I still, I listen to the soundtrack to this movie all the time, I think it uses music in the most beautiful, synesthetic way. I just love the shit out of this movie, and I think... Uh, and I wasn't even necessarily the biggest fan in the world of Guardians of the Galaxy 1. So this right. one caught me off guard. And it is, when I think back over the summer and what movies have stuck with me, this one really has, to a degree that surprised me. So Okay. Yeah. Number two is Logan Lucky, which I just talked about. Because, goddamn, Soderbergh did a, a, a Southern Heist movie. I love it. Three is Wonder Woman. Because, great movie. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Woman, we should say, I think a piece of cool news, just broke uh, a 15-year-old record for highest-grossing domestic uh, superhero, like, first movie. Yeah, debut. Debut, um, which was a record still held all these years by Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Yeah, I think people sometimes forget how wildly successful the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies were. Yeah, all of them set the opening weekend weekend record as they were coming out. Not Spider-Man 2, because it came out on a Wednesday and it was a weird thing, but 1 and 3 did, and they all were huge grocers around the world. Yeah. Yeah, so it just gives a lot of context to why Sony just cannot let it go. Yes, they can't let Spider-Man go because they probably still have some of that money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. But Wonder Woman was such a, uh, a an astounding success. I mean, kind of coming out of left field in that DC had some real stinkers before then. Oh yeah, and is going to have some real stinkers coming up. Almost certainly. But Patty Jenkins directed this so confidently, so beautifully, with such a sense of purpose. Gal Gadot gave. I'm hearing her name is actually pronounced Gal Gadot. But I don't actually I like know anything about Israeli, so... Me neither. Yeah, but I'll just say Gal Gadot, because that's how I know it. But she's... It's a star-making performance. She is wonderful. I cannot wait to see what she does, not just in future Wonder Woman performances, but as an actress. Um, Chris Pine doing, I think, maybe career-best work, that or Hell or High yeah. Water in that film. Great sense of place and style and theme. I love that movie. Number four would be Baby Driver, Edgar okay. Wright's film, which is another one that... It's got a couple of little issues, but when that movie is working, and it is that synergy between the music and the visuals and the editing and the propulsive nature of this film. Oh, man, there's never been anything quite like it, and it is just a pure joy. And if for no other reason than the scene where John Hamm is singing the song on the iPad very menacingly towards the title character, I will always remember that scene and some others. It is a great little movie, and I loved it. And five would be Dunkirk, the Chris Nolan movie, which was the spectacle of the summer and a very, very good movie. Not to me maybe as emotionally propulsive as some of these other films, but what a technical masterpiece. And and I think an actual evolution for Nolan in a lot of ways and how it pairs down to kind of his 
some of his strongest attributes as a director. It's, you know, it's only a 100 minute movie. It's by far his shortest film since his one hour student film following. Um, so yeah, the, those would be my top five. There were other good ones this summer, like yeah. Spider-Man Homecoming, yeah. which was a lot of fun, but I think a lot more lightweight maybe than these five films. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've enjoyed this summer at the movies a lot, and I I like that list there. You've got two kind of you got a passion project, two of those. You got two superhero movies that turned out very good, and then Soderbergh coming back and just doing his thing. And yeah, I've enjoyed this summer at the movies more than the last few. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. All right, so you want to go ahead and talk some news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? All right. <clears throat> The Super NES Classic pre-order clusterfuck of 2017. What is the clusterfuck? What are you talking about? Nintendo assured us that it was going to go better this time. Like, they literally they said, no, like, we're going to make more. We've learned from this experience, Jonathan. We're going to make more of these and make them more readily available. Pre-orders and everything. It's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. I mean, they already fucked it up once, but the great thing about making mistakes is that you can learn from them. They did not. Oh, no. Okay, so I witnessed this all in real time, kind of by accident. I was mm-hmm. not necessarily sitting down to like, I am going to get one of these hardcore. And I feel bad for the people who were, because you could be the most hardcore Super NES seeker in the world, and you probably still didn't get one of these. Yeah. Like, oh, you not probably, almost certainly didn't get one of these. So, like, last night, I was up late playing Sonic Mania, and as I took a break, I saw on Twitter that it had gone up on Best Buy briefly. And so I checked and it was already out. And it had been on Best Buy for about 15 minutes. Randomly at 1 in the morning our time. Uh-huh. So that was weird yeah. that they did that. Because that's the best time to make pre-orders yeah. available is in the dead of night. Because I should say, like, my experience of that was, like, that was literally, like, right when I was about to fall asleep. It was, like, like it was in bed and I was like, ah, I'm going to plug my phone into my charger. And I was look at Twitter, see if there's anything weird going on. And saw that happening on Twitter and just laughed myself to sleep. It's like, ha ha, you fucked it up again. Yep. So that happened. Then at around, and I also saw this unfold later because um, taking care of an extra dog and they've been kind of keeping me up a little bit. But I was checking Reddit at like 3 in the morning, the Nintendo Reddit, and... Oh, something weird happened here where it also went up on Amazon very briefly. This was the weirdest by far. It did not go up as the Super NES Classic on Amazon. It went up on a completely different page with a very mysterious title that people like online detective solved the puzzle together to figure out this was the Super NES Classic. Amazon had no limits on orders, so people could order like 50 of these things. And almost certainly all of those went to scalpers, right, as with yeah. all the pre-orders. Um, very few actual people are getting this console. Yeah. And so, one of like the important details of that, of like the weird second page thing, is that if you were someone that had that on your like watch list or whatever on Amazon, yeah. you wouldn't have been alerted when it became available, which you would have normally yes. when that page updated. Instead, yep. it went to this weird cryptic other page. And I should say, I had alerts set up on Best Buy, Amazon, GameStop, Target, Walmart... All of them eventually went up today. Not a single one sent an alert or has sent me an alert. That's a complete lie on all of their parts. That is not a thing they actually do. It's just to get your email address. Don't do it anymore. It's a lie. Anyway, so that was the wee hours of the morning. Amazon and Best Buy, the two biggest... The wee hours of the morning. That was not an intentional... It's Nintendo. Not an intentional pun in this case. a good one, Jonathan. Okay, the wee is not on my mind at the moment, but yes... um, so that was the, the small hours of the morning, we'll say, and that was the prelude to today, where we got up, and the first thing I should say, because I want to come back to this, is Nintendo had unembargoed a bunch of press coverage of the Super NES Classic this morning. So all the gaming sites, gaming channels on YouTube had videos and articles about the features and the UI and all this stuff. 
to get us all hyped for something that we would, 99.9% of people wanting to get one, will never lay eyes on. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's a really gross thing Nintendo did with the gaming press and the gaming press took part in. And I want to talk about that later. Sure. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that was the prelude to it. And then we started hearing word that the pre-orders were going to start to go live at uh, 11 a.m. our time, 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, something like that. So it just so happened that while this was going on, I, uh, had, t- I had taken my dog to the groomer. And our groomer is a little further away, so I just decided to like go to a restaurant and have some lunch and work on my computer, get stuff ready for this podcast while I was waiting for my dog to get groomed. Right. And um, because she had so much hair in her face, she like couldn't see it because she's a shaggy dog and that happens. So anyway, she, we can see her eyes again now and it's great. Uh, she didn't seem to really care because I don't think dogs use their eyes as much as we do. But sure. <laughs> anyway, um, while I was sitting there waiting, it seemed like this was going on. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm not doing anything else intensive right now. I'm going to see if I can get a Super NES Classic. Because one, I really do want one of these. I'd like to have it. It looks really cool. I also think it would be useful for some of the Let's Play stuff we have going on. Um, but anyway, so the first one to go up was Walmart. And I had the Walmart page up. I'd had it up for half an hour. I was refreshing. I saw the tweet come up that because I had tweets from a couple of sources that I know are reliable, like auto come up on my phone as soon as they were published. And so it told me, okay, and I refreshed Walmart. It was right there. I put it in my cart, checked out, and it just broke down and was gone. And it was gone. And I looked online, and that was everyone's experience. It was up for less than a minute on Walmart. So that was weird. Okay, yeah. GameStop, meanwhile, completely crashed. Right. So, I don't know. They were in and out all day. GameStop was also doing their tremendously gross thing where they and their subsidiary Thinking were mostly selling these in way overpriced bundles. So, yeah. GameStop is basically legally scalping systems, and it's disgusting that Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo allow them to do it. Right, yeah. They, they just need to cut them off. That's not okay. And we'll, we can talk about that more later, but it's not okay. Anyway, there was a trickle with that, but GameStop was mostly out of commission. Best Buy Canada put it up. You can, Best Buy Canada does not ship out of country. So that was not an option for us. But I did monitor it to see, well, how fast are the Canadian ones going? Also lasted less than a minute. Target went up and was a complete clusterfuck because you could add it to your cart and get all the way to checkout. And then the site would crash and you'd have to go check your orders and it wouldn't be there. And that was also flitting in and out all day and there was no reliable way to tell when they actually had systems. Yeah, and that's like the most stressful thing is when like it's right at that moment of checkout that the site yeah. goes down and you have no idea if you actually ordered it or not. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, did, like I actually did. This going to come back and I somehow ordered like a hundred of these things and I'm like, you know, in severe financial debt. That always stresses me out. I, like, yeah. I hate it when online like checkout pages freak out because you have my credit card information already and I do not want to deal with a freak out on that. Yeah. Uh, the last retailer standing that we knew was going to sell these things was Toys R Us, and they just tweeted, "We're not doing, we're not bothering with pre-orders." So that takes care of all the places that you could buy a Super NES Classic from. In total, less than twenty minutes of time across the last twenty-four hours that you could have actually pre-ordered one of these. The vast majority probably went to bots and to scalpers because of how fast it happened. Uh, and if you look at eBay listings, that seems to bear out. Yeah. So. Uh, this was pretty disgusting. And it's not just frustrating, it's it's disgusting. It's Nintendo treating their fans like crap, frankly. Because, yeah. and this is where I need to go back to the thing about the press coverage this morning. Because they clearly did that knowing they were going to have the pre-orders up today. But if you, you, they know how many they've made. They know yeah. how many they've allocated. 
And like the other thing is, um, you could also pre-order these in person at a GameStop store. I heard, but like I also looked at some of these because I want to see well how many were they allowing, and it was like max seven or eight systems. So this is absolutely no different than the NES Classic last year. Maybe even worse. Like people are getting very few. They have not produced the hundreds of thousands of these. They have not produced the millions. If they've produced more than the hundreds for North America, that would frankly be surprising at yeah. this point. So they have barely produced these, and they decided to do this ad blitz today in conjunction with all these gaming websites. So you got all hyped up about it and saw it was really cool, but it also frankly felt like a show of confidence. Like, oh, Nintendo's showing this thing off. Maybe they really do have their shit together with these pre-orders. The Best Buy and Amazon thing last night was weird, but Amazon is never reliable for pre-ordering systems or anything like that. So maybe we can write that off. And the Best Buy thing, maybe they'll come back up. No. It was the worst case scenario. Absolutely. Again, they've mostly what they've done is created a really expensive third-party market where people are uh-huh. going to get ripped off. And most of these are never going to wind up in the hands of people who actually want to play them. And all of that. And then you look at things like, you know, how disgusting GameStop was being, how utterly inept every retailer was in this, and how there was no leadership from Nintendo on this. This is a clusterfuck, and Nintendo is and should be better than this. Yeah, especially because, it, like, it, you know, made the joke at the top of this podcast, but it's, like, legitimately true. They, like, this already happened once a year ago. Like, it has not even quite a year ago. Like, it's, we've already been fucking through this. With the classic edition stuff from Nintendo. And they said that they had learned from this. And clearly they didn't. Because it's like. They didn't make it clearly like public. When they were going to make pre-orders available. Which like Nintendo would have had the power to do that. That's not necessarily uncommon. For that information to be out there. If they know it's going to be a high demand. Limited run sort of item. You need to be communicative. With your audience and your fans and your consumers. When, you, when you're doing a release like this. That you're going to make like you know thousands of them or whatever and then that's going to be it and and once they've made all these stupid nintendo classic editions like they've said it's not going to be a continuous item it's not the nintendo switch it's not like their ongoing sort of console that they're going to support it's this one and done kind of thing and that's and you and it is absurd when you have this one and done thing and you utterly fuck it yeah and also they're not marketing it that way and uh-huh, it's the same with right. the nes classic they are not publicly talking about these things in any way, shape, or form as a limited release item. That's what they clearly are. That is how they are treating them from a supply and demand level as an extremely limited edition run. But that is not how they're marketing them. Limited edition runs do not get a press blitz right. from the gaming press. And I would, if I were running Kotaku or Polygon or Game Explainer, any of the channels I saw publishing stuff on this today, I would have said... Our thing on this is contingent on you telling us what is this a limited run or not? Because like that's a legitimate part of this story, and if even if it's no comment, that has to be a part of the stuff we run. Because if you're lying to your customers, we don't want to be complicit in that. And sadly, I think a lot of the gaming press is complicit in that when they publish five different stories about this stuff uh, as coverage for something that is kind of a non-starter. Very few people are ever going to own these. Yeah. So. All of that is just immensely frustrating. Nintendo can't even get their story straight on what kind of run these things are. And it's just so bizarre. There is no good... Like, I keep hearing, like, yeah, but look at all the free hype they're getting. They're Nintendo. 
They've been around forever. They will be around forever. They don't need any more hype. They're fine. Also, what good does the free hype get them if yeah. they sell every single unit that they produce? Like, yeah. you're not getting anything extra out of that. Like, no. that's, that's economically speaking, that is wasted time and effort yes. that you have just made because you're not getting any actual monetary value from yeah. it because you're not producing enough uh, units to, go, you know, supply the demand. Go Occam's Razor on this. Simplest explanation. You make more stuff, you get more money on this. Right. Like, right, there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people probably today ready to give out their credit cards and give Nintendo money for this, and all of that is left on the table. So it's just shitty business strategy, and I don't want to hear anymore how it's like a good legitimate business strategy. It's just ineptitude, but it's also ineptitude at this point that feels somewhat insidious in how none of the different arms are talking to each other. Yeah. It is, it is one of like the several instances with Nintendo that you get of like you hear what they say and you see what they do and you just you get this sense every once in a while that's like does Nintendo not realize like it's this massive international company like it feels like Nintendo has this like there's a core at Nintendo that has this very insular like oh no we're like this you know we're like a very successful but we are a Japanese company that makes products for the Japanese market that happens to also be able to sell on a worldwide market but it's like they they don't carry themselves like they're they're a big international player when that's what you are and you need to realize that and that's what leads to like if this was just a like limited edition thing for like the Japanese market you just had your Super Famicom classic like that would make sense there's a lots of weird like limited edition sort of exclusive otaku merchandise in Japan that's how part of that market functions that's not how it functions anywhere else though and so you just completely poison the entire market and, and poison your consumer base and your fan base when you treat them like this. Yeah, it's just, it's hot bullshit, you know? And there is no good explanation for it. If they did not want to or felt like they could not put in the resources to make enough of these to sell to their customers, then they should never have announced it. They should never have gotten it into development. It shouldn't be a product. Right. End of story. End of story. That's it. That's all there is to it. I don't want to hear any more of the think pieces about, well, actually, it's not going to be a huge profit driver because, but, 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 not our problem. Yeah. That's, I don't really care what their reasons are. And yeah, you know, and, and again, I do think it's probably a legitimate thing that, uh, to say that, uh, the Nintendo Switch has not been a clusterfuck in terms of supply and demand. Like, it's actually been pretty reasonable for a thing selling as well as it has. Yeah. And it's, it's, po- it's probable that that has limited their supply chain in terms of manufacturing these. But that's, again, that's their problem, not ours. And yeah, if that's that, the case, you that know That just means they should have waited. Yes, like, you like wait it. a year until your yeah. Switch supply, you know, demand is not as constrained as it is right now. Yeah. And then you, you divert your resources to making the, the Super NES Classic. Yeah. Instead of, like, having to, trying to do this NES Classic, then the Nintendo Switch, and then the Super Nintendo Classic, like, back to back to back. Yeah. If, you're, if your fucking factory, you know, space could not supply what you needed there, then don't fucking do it. Because I'll tell you, if Nintendo came out tomorrow and said, we're delaying this until February of 2018 or something so we can make more units, and we're going to take pre-orders now and we're going to manufacture on-demand pre-orders or something like that, no one on earth would be mad about that. Yeah. That would, it would sell better. It would be better for their image. People would be happy. It would feel like Nintendo was listening and communicative, but no. And it is sadly emblematic of something Nintendo does way too often these days. And when you pair this with the fact that they have been utterly silent about virtual console on the Nintendo right, Switch, yeah. it's just extra frustrating. Because that's one of the things is that, like, 
you know, you can play a lot of these games on the Wii U and the 3DS, but those are, uh, the 3DS is still a current, you know, supported console. The Wii U is not. A lot of people have put it away for their Nintendo Switch. And the Nintendo Switch has no virtual console on the horizon. And the Super NES Classic has a bunch of games on it that have not been on those services before. um, Up to and including something like Star Fox 2, which is an unreleased game. So there's a lot of things people are, you know, justifiably excited for here. Including that the product looks like it's really refined their virtual console approach. Which how it uses save states and rewinds and and borders and all this stuff. It doesn't have to be tied to this console. They could announce tomorrow we're going to release for $80 the Super NES Classic Switch Edition. And it's a cartridge with all of them on it. And it would sell like hotcakes and they could also deliver it because it's a cartridge. Yeah, which would also make the sort of like limited edition hardware version make a lot more sense. Yes. If there was a software thing that's like, well, these games are available to anyone through like digital downloads on our like Switch and 3DS storefronts or whatever. But also, like, as this limited edition run, we have made these, like, really nice premium boxes that have all the games in there and that have, like, you know, like, there's replica controllers and all this right. stuff. And you can buy this for 80 bucks, and it's going to be this, like, premium holiday item. I think that, like, it would still be incredibly frustrating if all of these, like, sort of, like, sort of supply issues existed. But I think it would be more excusable if, if there could... was other, some other ways to get the games. Yeah, like, if you just could go to the eShop on September 29th and buy a package that had all of them. Yeah. That would be, no one, again, no one would be complaining about all of this, or at least not as much, because the worst case scenario is you can play them on their cool Switch console. Right. You know, and this is the worst part of all of it, is none of this should be hard. Not an iota of this should be difficult. Uh, Not in the sense of, like, mass production and all that, but there are ways around every one of these difficulties that are not, they don't even take creative thinking. Like, put them on your flagship console. Whoever thought of that? Yeah, or, do the thing you've been doing since, like, 2006 with the yes. Wii on your 2017 console. Yeah. Make a announced date and time for pre-orders, you know? Right. Give yourself enough lead time to create enough for retail. All of these things. I even suggest this on Twitter. To me, I think the best way to do these, if these are really only ever going to be a limited supply thing, is sell them through Nintendo.com and have, like, a one-week pre-order period. And you go there and you give them $80... And with that, they promise that they will manufacture and send you one around the time. And there can be, like, tiers. Like, the first 10,000 go out on this date, the next 10,000 on this date. That is a common business strategy. That would be perfectly... You could do that. Again, it might be... You might get a lot of orders and have to backdate some of them. But that would be a way to know, okay, this is the exact demand... You know, and the only argument against that would be, well, then they're not going to be on store shelves. But hey, I got a surprise for all you guys. They're not going to be on store shelves. Yeah. You will never see one of these on a store shelf. And that is... Unless the store shelf is like the back alley on a trash can yes. while you're talking to Gary when his fucking black trench coat. Yeah. So it's just, it's disrespectful to to fans. And, you know, there's a lot of people to play here. Again, it is disgusting that all of the game companies are letting GameStop do what they do with these sales and the, the yeah. bundling stuff because it's really hostile to consumers. And, I mean, GameStop, just it's a dead company walking, and I cannot wait for them to shut down. But, you know, the game companies have leverage over them. And they could say, stop it or you don't get our console, and that'd be it. GameStop sure. has no yeah. leverage the other way around. I'm sorry, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm mad about this. It's just annoying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, especially when, again, they hype it up and, hey, Nintendo once again made a really cool product because they're good at that. Yeah. Now, why will you not let us give you our fucking money? Mm-hmm. It feels like they're gaslighting all of us. Right, yeah. Like, I feel sometimes insane. Like, all I want to do is do a capitalist transaction with you and you won't let me. 
And it's weird. Yeah. Because, you know, if someone else wanted to give me $80, I'd take it. Patreon.com slash Weekly Stuff Podcast. Yes. Yeah. Like, we should just make a special the Super ABS edition version of, uh, you know, for patrons. $80. Yeah. And, no. and we do our damnedest to try to find a Super ABS classic for you. No one needs to pay us eighty dollars on our page. No. Please don't do that. That's that's. I mean, if that's, you want to do it, you can do it. We got our five dollar tier, for ten dollar tier. They're good. You're not going to turn it down. Anyway, let's talk about some news, and we're going to go into some movie news next. Okay. Because I think they're kind of funny pieces of movie news, and it'll be a nice, it'll even us out here. All right. All right. Um, first off, uh, this broke in Variety, I believe, that Disney is developing a Obi Wan Kenobi standalone Star Wars movie. Yes. Um, with writer director Stephen Daldry, who would be best known for a bunch of plays he has done in Britain and America, a very acclaimed uh, theater director. He has made a couple of movies too that have not been super acclaimed. Um, Kate Winslet won her Oscar for one of his movies, The Reader, I think, is what it is. But like, um, a very talented stage director. Um, he's made three or four movies. So, kind of interesting. I would not have expected that name to come up in relationship to this, but it's an interesting choice. Yeah. And not a lot of other details yet. Um, you know, there's been enough chatter over the years of, like, they're making Star Wars movies again. Ewan McGregor is still out there. Yeah. Ewan McGregor is still awesome. Ewan McGregor is very publicly open to doing more Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, I think we can all assume this would be between episodes three and four. Right. And if not, I'm not sure why they'd do it. Yeah, like, and that is actually one of the things that feels weird about the announcement is I feel like surely you would have just lined that up, right? Like, and just said, like, yeah, we're well, doing an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie with Ewan McGregor. This wasn't an announcement, this was a report in the trade. Okay. So. You know, this is probably something that was going to leak, and Disney gave them some information so they could control part of the story. Because okay. I would imagine, I probably, yeah, I think Disney in an ideal world would have Ewan McGregor sign the dotted line and then announce it, but who knows? Yeah, because to me, that's like a, I mean, that's like a huge part of the appeal of an yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi movie is that he was the best part of the prequels. Like, Ewan McGregor was awesome as Obi-Wan, and obviously was sort of saddled with two very bad movies, and one movie that is, I think, overall good, but has a lot of bad stuff in it, and it would be awesome to just, like, see him be able to sort of lead a movie on his own, like, like, like something that would be set in between episode three and four, where there, there's been a lot of stuff that's kind of, like, hypothesized about, like, oh, what would, like, Obi-Wan do? I think there's an interesting plot there of him, you know, being in, in Tatooine, kind of trying to look over Luke, and then something from his past comes back up that he has to deal with, like, there's... Like, there's a huge amount of potential there with that. Well, and assuming that's what it's going to be, that's why I kind of like Stephen Daldry, that they didn't get a big, like, blockbuster director. but right. some Because this would have to... I would want this to be a lower-budget, smaller, more intimate character piece. And it feels like you hire a guy like Stephen Daldry, hopefully that's the direction you're going in. Yeah. So, yeah, um... This is an announcement overall I would be excited about, just with the, like, you know, you have to pull back and say, well, we don't know all the details yet. If what we assume comes to fruition... That sounds like a much better idea for a Star Wars spinoff than some of the other stuff they've done are doing will do. Yeah. Because, um, again, it's, it's kind of basic Obi-Wan Kenobi. But when you've got Ewan McGregor out there and you've got this convenient 20-year time jump where you could tell a lot of interesting little stories, kind of, to me, it's like, why not? You know? Yeah, like, it's one of the, the sort of ideas for a Star Wars spinoff movie when they sort of announced that they were going to do some of these that, to me, seemed like if you're going to do one that is bringing back an old character as opposed to something like Rogue One that is, is basically original. Like, the, as far as original in Star Wars exists for, we, we are the people who got the Death Star plans. But anyways, but you know, like, if you're going to pull back an old character, instead of doing a fucking young Han Solo movie or a Boba Fett movie or whatever, 
do an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie with Ewan McGregor like while he's still young enough to like really easily fit in that time period and still wants to do it. Yeah. So, you know, if that's what it turns out to be, this is a Star Wars movie I will be happily excited to watch. Yeah. You know, but um yeah, and and I think it's good to be on edge on a lot of this given the clusterfuck that has been the Han Solo production right. and some of the stuff with Rogue One, but who knows? We'll see how it all goes down. I like the idea of this. Again, I agree like and and probably Disney would agree. It would be best if this announcement had been, you know, Stephen Daldry, Obi-Wan Kenobi movie starring Ewan McGregor set in blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And here's the, that's what we're going to make. But, yeah. you know, we'll hear more. And if it's not that, I don't understand the idea. Yeah. This is like, if, if it is something of like Obi-Wan Kenobi pre-episode one or something, it's like, why would you, why would you make that? Yeah. He's Who just... wants to watch that? I mean, there is, like, some extended lore stuff with, like, little things about his childhood, but not enough to build a movie yeah. around. And it's overall, something that would seem that interesting to me. Because especially part of his appeal in Episode One is that, like, you're contrasting him with Anakin. Obi-Wan is a guy who's come up through the Jedi system. You right. know, he's been doing this his whole life. He's a professional Padawan who becomes a master over the course of that movie. I do think Obi-Wan's arc over the course of those three movies is the, by far the best thing about them. Um... So yeah, there's no reason to go back and do more revisionism on that. Um, because also, Ewan McGregor was a really young dude in episode one. Yes. So we've seen young Obi-Wan. Yeah. And I would like to see, you know, he matured so much over those six years in those three movies. Do, do another one 10, 15 years later, I'd like to see. Because I think he's continued to mature as an actor. I love Ewan McGregor. Yeah, absolutely. And see what he did. Get him to grow the beard back out. Because I bet, at this age, he could grow an even better beard. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, um... So that's that. Uh, in the, these reports, we also heard that a Job of the Hut movie is also something being discussed. I think people don't take that as literally like that is in the same category as the uh, Boba Fett movie, which the Boba Fett movie, to be fair, everyone treats that as like just an open, yeah, they're making a Boba Fett movie. That's never been announced. There's right. never been hard reporting on that. It sounds like it's kind of an open secret that that's what Josh Trank was working on before he got fired because Fantastic Four was a clusterfuck. Oh, yeah. Um, and they realized this guy seems kind of unstable. But, uh, yeah, there's really been no forward momentum with that. It, but it does sound like that goes into the same category as, like, the Boba Fett thing, that they might be considering a Job of the Hutt movie. And that overall trend, Han Solo, Job of the Hutt, Boba Fett, Obi-Wan Kenobi, do you guys have no creative bones in your uh -huh. bodies? Like, is there really no better idea for a Star Wars spinoff? I've got one! A Chewbacca movie! Wow! I got another one, a Yoda movie. Wow! I've got another Darth Maul movie. He was I'd only watch... in one of them. I'd actually watch that. Yeah, that would be a way better one. Yeah, like a, a completely silent film. Get yes. Uh, get Jendi Tartakovsky to do it in the style of like Samurai Jack or the Clone Wars. Okay, fuck yeah. I'd watch that. Yes. Not I gonna would... happen. No. I'd watch that. No, no it's just like and I, I got I... another one. Padme prequel. <laughs> While she was still the Queen of Naboo. A had made the prequel because that's everyone's favorite part of the phantom menace yeah no yeah no um i don't know like a yoda movie is another thing listed in the variety report that they are considering it's just all of it it's like yes these are popular characters has no one stopped to ask themselves is there actually a story with any of these people because who knows the han solo thing sounds like it's been a disaster we'll see if it's any good when it comes out but like i don't Star Wars is such a big canvas to paint on. I don't know why you'd... Again, Obi-Wan Kenobi makes sense yeah. for all the reasons we listed. Jabba the Hutt does not need his own movie. Like, what would that even be? What is that movie? I don't know. I mean, the only thing I could think of is, like, 
it's a it's a crime movie like starring a character that is close to Jabba the Hutt. Like I don't know, Salacious Crumb the movie. Finally, the movie we've been waiting for since the Return of the Jedi, Slacious Crumb, starring in Slacious Crumb the movie. I want them to get beat Takeshi over to the U.S. to direct a Yakuza uh, Job of the Hut movie, where basically Job of the Hut is not the main character because that could never work. No. But like, just have some random like Japanese guy being like a, a, an underling in the Hut family organization and like trying to rise to the top. And it's a gritty R-rated Yakuza. It just he can do it in Japanese. That's fine. I mean, really, all you need to do is take the movie Outrage and yes. then just put some CGI Job of the Hut kind of characters in the background and like CGI laser bolts instead of bullets. And that's, the, the dentist drill scene is way different. Yes, it's a lightsaber. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Don't yeah. make a Job of the Hut movie. It's such a bad idea. None of this is as bad an idea as our next movie we're going to talk about. Oh, which yeah. is right before we went on air, The Hollywood Reporter broke a story that DC slash Warner Brothers are in the works on a Joker prequel movie that will be written, co-written by Todd Phillips, directed by Todd Phillips, also co-written by Scott Silver, who's done some good stuff. Uh, Todd Phillips is probably most famous as the director of the Hangover trilogy. He also did Old School back in the day. He's done, he's done comedy. He's a comedy director. Uh, and a good one. I, I, I like his movies. But uh, yeah, so all of that... Joker prequel movie. Martin Scorsese might be tied to it as an executive producer. That was by far the most baffling thing in the report. And they said that's far from being like a set thing. So I would not take that as gospel. Um, my hope is that that's like a game of telephone where someone said Zack Snyder and they heard Martin Scorsese because they were drunk or something. I don't sure, know. They were, they were in the middle of watching Wolf of Wall Street on yeah. Netflix and they had Scorsese on the brain. Yeah. Uh, they've also like, this is not going to be tied to the rest of the DC continuity. Ergo, this will not be about the Jared Leto Joker. Okay. The idea is that it would be set in the 1980s and... This would be the beginning of a start of a subcategory of DC movies that would not be tied to the main continuity and would be lower budget projects. Okay. Young Joker, a DC comics story. Every piece of this is stupid. What's the stupidest piece? Um, the making a Joker origin movie. Yeah. Just, just flat out that. You know I'm, what? You I mean, know what? Making makes... a movie starring the Joker as the like protagonist character. Barred like like just that. Also, to trying to do an origin movie for the Joker. Both of those things combined don't. Yeah, this is my advice on that one. I mean, what makes the Joker more scary than telling us everything about him? Right? Yeah. No. I no. mean, if you yeah. know everything about a character, that's what makes them very menacing. Is like once you've, you've you've you know cast off all the shadows and all the mystery around them, it's like oh yeah, you're just. You know, Jack, and you fell into the vat, and it's like this is just who you are, and it's just that, it's just straight that, and and also like you know, there's nothing more interesting than the Joker sans Batman because of course there's the Batman does nothing to contextualize and make the Joker the Joker. It's really it's why I cannot wait for the Coen Brothers to come back and do their three part trilogy about Anton Chigurh before the events of No Country for yeah. Old Men. I mean, yeah, we really need to fill in those dots, I think, to make him a compelling character. And don't come at us with the killing joke. The whole point of the fucking killing joke is that it's probably not true. Yeah. And it all feels like Alan Moore kind of doing a satire of that kind of story, not a like legitimate attempt to say, here's exactly who the Joker was. Also, it's a 40-page comic. Yeah. And we've already seen some pretty talented people crash hard on the rocks of that story. Yeah. So, and I'm going to tell you, I don't think Todd Phillips is more up to the task than the people who made Batman the Animated Series. Right. So, anyway. Yeah, no. It's so dumb. 
you you from every angle you just said like the Joker should not be headlining a movie. And to me, it's also like this stinks of such rancid desperation. Uh-huh. It's like you haven't even gotten Justice League in order. You've hired three people for the Flash movie. You can't get your main heroes movies together. And you are DC. You have hundreds of heroes you could make movies about. For some reason, you're prioritizing Black Adam or something. I don't know. And Cyborg. That's because The Rock wants to be Black Adam. Yeah, that's sure. the only reason they ever talk about it. Yeah. But. Now you're just jumping ahead to the fucking Joker prequel movie? Like, at least when Sony started talking about their Venom movie, they'd done ten years of Spider-Man movies, and were really floundering and trying to figure out what to do, and it doesn't make it a good idea, but it makes it, you understand how they got there. Sure, yeah. This is the dumbest fucking thing. And it just, it's like a perpetual reminder that everyone with a dick at Warner Brothers or DC is really bad at their jobs right now. And it's everyone with a dick because Patty Jenkins made Wonder Woman and it was great. Yeah. But we can take everyone else out of the fucking equation. Yeah, it's just... It's a... It's also, just the other thing is you are, you know, purportedly trying to build up this DC Cinematic Universe in the style of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to get that, you know, Cinematic Universe money or whatever. And so then one of the first things you're doing... After you have really fucked things out of the gate and then kind of, you know, salvaged something in this Wonder Woman movie that is set, you know, a hundred years before everything else. So it's like salvaged is maybe a bit much. But what you're like, you're starting to maybe get a best foot forward with that shit. And then immediately, like, and now we're going to make a movie that is in a totally different continuity. Yeah, like... like, Why? What? Why? What? Yeah, I mean, imagine if Marvel tomorrow... Just announced a standalone, I don't know, Doctor Doom movie or something. And he had, he had not with any other characters. And it's like, it's not tied to the universe. But we're making a standalone Doctor Doom movie. Yeah. We'd be like, well, I'm glad you got the rights to Doctor Doom. That yeah. seems like a weird way to use him. Yeah. Right? It's all so bizarre. And yeah, that whole thing of, yeah, now we're going to start making the subcontinuity movies. Guys, m- mainstream audiences can't figure this shit out anyway. Most people, I don't think, are even aware Superman and Iron Man aren't in the same universe. So, like, maybe start with that. Maybe start with figuring out your brand identity, because you haven't yet. Yeah. And then you can play your fun games. As I said on Twitter, the only way this works for me is if this is a hangover reunion, and Zach Galifianakis plays the Joker, and basically reprises his role as the Joker from the Lego Batman movie, and it is a comedy making fun of the idea of a Joker origin story. I would watch that. Sure, yeah. That's almost certainly not what this will be. No. I don't think Martin Scorsese is executive producing that. I just, the whole thing, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand any of the business decisions they're making. It is such a, ha- you know, haphazard thing they're doing. I mean, we don't even know who Batman's going to be after this next movie. Right. So, yeah, it's bizarre. It's very bizarre. Yeah. This is one in a long, long line of weird choices that, yeah. that Warner Brothers has been making about their DC Comics movies. <sighs> anyway, you know, someone said on Twitter today... They had like a thread like, what's the movie that makes you angriest that you had to watch or something like that? And I said Suicide Squad. It's what came to mind. That is the movie I hate most that I have ever paid to see. And, you know, I, I just, I don't trust these people to do the Joker well anymore. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, that's, that, one last point. So much of this that they're spiraling out of is not just because of Marvel's success, but because Chris Nolan made three very successful Batman movies. Right. And it feels like with each step forward they take after the Chris Nolan Batman movies, it feels to me like nobody at Warner Brothers saw those films or understood what made them good. Yeah. You know? Because I don't know how you look at the success of The Dark Knight and what Heath Ledger did in that film 
and Chris Nolan did with Heath Ledger in that film, and you think the answer to new stories is we need to figure out the origin of that character. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I really don't understand how that is anyone's impulse. So, very bizarre. Uh, I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman 2. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, and maybe her scenes in Justice League. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe someone will make a supercut on YouTube. Yes. Like, you go, just the Wonder Woman parts of Justice if, League. If the local theater sold a ticket that was just, we've cut Justice League down to just her scenes, it's 40 minutes long, I, that's the one I would go pay to see. Yeah. I want all of her scenes, and then I just want to see all the, the Jeremy Irons, Alfred scenes, just to see if he ever breaks out of that like one character stick that he had in Batman v Superman. Let's talk some video game news, Sean. So what's going on in the world of video games? We've been talking about news for a while, or movie news for a while. Yeah, so uh, Gamescom was this week. Yes, it was. And yes, you wanted to talk about Germany. this. Because there really wasn't anything out of Gamescom. Yeah, so, like, Gamescom is a show that, like, used to be, like, you know, like, over ten years ago. Because, because Gamescom is the, like, it's a, you know, European-focused, uh, it's, it's, it is held in Germany, so it's focused for the European market. But it's a big, huge games conference. I mean, Angela Merkel goes there every year. I mean, she, she like, presides over the thing. Which I mean, is crazy. She's there I'm not joking. No, she's, yeah, no, yeah. she really is, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, she's really into Counter-Strike, it's a whole thing. <laughs> Anyways, but, that's the joke. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, like, but you know, all the European press, games press are obviously there, but then most uh, sort of major uh, American news outlets also go to Gamescom and cover it. But over the past five to ten years or so, like, like Gamescom has slowly sort of started to dwindle and dwindle to the point where now um, Sony doesn't have any like concerted presence there at all like they used to have like small press conferences now sony has no press con like it's so far away from having a press conference nintendo obviously is like completely out of the business of doing press conferences but you know they're not really there in a huge concerted presence either but microsoft has still been holding on to that like gamescom slot for a while and this year they did have i like i didn't watch it because you should watch it, but it was like a 90-minute long press conference, basically. Obviously, because they're they're you know launching the Xbox One X uh, in the fall this year, and so they I guess theoretically they would have something to talk about. Because also Microsoft has so many holes in their story right now that they need to fill up with like first-party games and like you know really pitch the Xbox One X. I think more effectively than they did at E3 because at E3 it's like they had a good opening with it. And then kind of forgot to ever mention it for the entire press conference till the very end. To the point where you forgot, oh right, I guess some of these games must be running on Xbox One X. I forgot that that was a thing that they already announced. And so they had a lot of stuff on their plate that they needed to sort of get across. And they should have forced a trailer. Uh, they're making a Minecraft, Minecraft uh, themed Xbox One S. Yeah, there you go. So if you don't want the you new get one, a, you can get the old one. You can get a pink Xbox One controller that's a Minecraft pig. Yeah. They announced that you could pre-order the um, limited version, launch version of the Xbox One X called the Project Scorpio Edition. And you know what? Shout out to Microsoft. Exactly how you do pre-orders. Sure, They announced yes. it. Yeah. They went up to retailers. There was a perfectly reasonable window. If you wanted to get one, you could probably um, get one. And it's it's a pretty cool like launch day edition they've put together. The Project Scorpio edition doesn't cost any more. Yeah, uh, they did the same thing with the Xbox One launch day. So you know I'm not uh, getting one of these at least yet. But kudos to them on all that. They did it perfectly. Yeah, and I just really like the idea that there's someone on the Xbox team that like fought this fight of like fine. Fine, you guys can call it the fucking Xbox One X. Fine, I will give it up. But I've been telling you the whole time that we should have just launched it as the Xbox One Scorpio. People would have loved it. It was a great project name. We should have just done it. 
And now that the internet knows our stupid name, now I have enough, like, you know, ammo in this argument to say, like, we're at least going to do the fucking day one version called the Project Scorpio version because you guys were fucking wrong and it's too late to change it now. Sean, I really want, like, a miniseries written and directed by you of different <laughs> people in corporate environments, like, standing on a soapbox for very weird things. Very like, specific things that they feel very strongly about. This... Your Twin Peaks guy at Showtime. Yes. You've had a lot of these, and I want to see it, their stories. It is one of my fantasies about, because it's the thing about capitalism that you forget, is that there are, like, individual people that run all these companies that do hold some personal sway. And I guess I am taken by this fantasy of, like, the corporate businessman who has the one passion deep in his, like, cold, you know, money-vaulted heart that's like, no, I will not stand for this. If the fucking Xbox One X is a terrible name. Because someone had to know. There's no way that everybody in the world, except for the people working at Microsoft, were the only people who knew that Xbox One X was a terrible name for that console. Uh, who's the lead at Xbox right now? What's his uh, name? Phil Spencer. Phil Spencer. It, this might be Phil Spencer, Sean. Because sure, the way yes. he said the name on stage, he did not sound particularly proud of it's it. like, oh, this is the Xbox One X. Yeah. And the way he, like, mumbled the price and yes, things. Yes, four ninety nine. Yeah. And we know he's a passionate guy, so yeah. Yes. He's, Phil Spitzer's cool. I, I, I have some faith in him, but it's, yeah. So, but yeah, so they had a whole kind of wet fart uh, uh, press conference. The one th- cool thing they did show is they showed um, their, you know, because that Jurassic Park is big again, so they showed off a Jurassic World video game sort of debut trailer that looks like, I think it's supposed to basically be like a Jurassic Park tycoon kind of game. Which, that's actually a really good idea. Such a good idea that it kind of amazes me that it hasn't happened before. Such a good idea that I'd rather do that than see the movies. Sure, exactly. Because it's like, there have been so many Jurassic Park the movies at this point. But there's also been so many Jurassic Park video games. And almost all of them have been abjectly fucking awful. And this is like the one video game idea that's like, that actually is a really good idea for a Jurassic Park video game. And we should say it's not an exclusive or anything. No, yeah, that's, they... that's, the, that's the sort of kicker is that, it, you know, it was just a nice stage to show off this new game at. Which also is like, you know, it's a licensed game, so I don't, yeah. it's not like the biggest thing in the world. But yes, it is coming yeah. to PC, Xbox One, and PS4. And I, I should say, I want reasons to root for Xbox. No, absolutely. I, I want, yeah, I want both Microsoft and Sony to be at the top of their game. So I would know, like them to be more competitive because Sony, I think, has gotten a little lazy in some areas. Not with the games, but with some of the hardware stuff. And I'd like to see, because competition breeds innovation. Yeah. And the Xbox has so many promising things about it that my hope has been, and again, I'm not buying one at launch, but if I hear really good things about the Xbox One X, I might upgrade at some point. Because... The Xbox One is a platform with a lot of promise and a lot of flaws. And I think if you could iron out some of those flaws and focus on things like the backwards compatibility and that Games with Gold has been a really good service in this generation, much better than PS Plus the last couple of years. And, you know, their online offerings are pretty good and, you know, they've gotten the UI more under control. Like, if they can get all that together, you know, I'd like to support them more. I really would. I like Xbox. But anyway, yeah. One the- one other thing at Gamescom that has just is one of the most annoying things. Even though it doesn't really affect me, it just is really annoying. Is there has been this whole like second version of what happened with Rise of the Tomb Raider like two to three years ago, where they showed like you know they de- debuted Rise of the Tomb Raider on a Microsoft stage at E3 like three years ago, and it, 
That was when, like, the messaging around that game was so messy. Nobody had any idea if it was a Microsoft exclusive, if it was going to be multi-platform at launch, if it was going to be multi-platform, like, a year after launch. And it took, like, a whole day or to two days of different press people asking different people at Microsoft about Rise of the Tomb Raider to get any semblance of an idea of what the fuck they were talking about when they were saying exclusive with regards to Rise of the Tomb Raider. Then eventually, obviously, it was... It was an Xbox launch launch exclusive that then came to Sony's console a year later. But now we have um, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is the sort yes, of yeah. it's the huge multiplayer uh, Steam darling in, in early access that has like I think three to four million players now on Steam. It's been a crazy success. And at E3 this year, Microsoft said like, oh, like PUBG, which is what it's sort of like being colloquially called now, um, is going to be an Xbox One video game at some point. And that's going to try to like launch this fall or something. Because PUBG is technically still in early access, and yeah, Xbox has the early access thing, whatever they call yeah, it, the game preview program. Yeah, so it would be part of that by the end of the year. Yeah, but I but there was a pretty good understanding at that point that while it was probably going to be Microsoft exclusive at first because it would be on the game preview program, that it was absolutely going to go multi-platform at some point. But then they had another trailer and talked about it more at this Gamescom press conference. And the like language about exclusivity and Microsoft is publishing the game on the Xbox and all this stuff came up to the point where if you like Google it now, it's still like most gaming press outlets have no idea what is going on with it. And I just want to read a Twitter conversation that was part of a, a whole NeoGAF thread about this topic. And I just found this Twitter conversation so infuriatedly just like talking around this subject. It's between um, Destin Legary, who is a producer at IGN, and then um, responding to him was a Twitter person, the Sammy PUBG underscore Gamescom, that I assume is some social community manager or something like that. But anyways, Destin from IGN says, I was not clear on the PUBG announcement. They were always publishing it on Xbox. Did they confirm it's 100% exclusive? And then the community person responds, We have expanded the partnership and will be working more closely with the at Xbox team to launch on console faster and will get more support. The Destin responds back, To clarify the phrasing, does that mean it'll be published exclusively on PC and Xbox but not any other consoles with Microsoft as the publisher? Then Sammy responds, yes, this partnership is about allowing our dev team to solely focus on Xbox and PC development and bring PUBG to Xbox players faster. Then someone else called Tall Dave chimes in and says, that still doesn't really answer the question, though. And then Sammy responds, we have nothing further to announce at this time. We'll be working hard to bring PUBG to Xbox sooner. And it's like, here's the thing. This would be the kicker for Xbox, right? Or yeah, a kicker, it would like, be a huge exclusive for them. Yeah, because PUBG is huge. If and Xbox has done so much cool stuff recently with like cross-platform between PC and Xbox, that if this really was an exclusive, one perfect for the Xbox brand, sure, yeah, and their multiplayer and online stuff, absolutely perfect. You have it as an actual exclusive. That is that is a game that will sell consoles. That is a game that will promote community. All of those things, and why that's all kind of weird and disheartening is that. Microsoft knows that, and if they actually had the exclusive, they'd be like calling it from the yes. rafters. That's that is the the number one sort of like context clue for. Of right. course, it's going to come to the PS4 because if it wasn't, then like you said, Microsoft would make it one hundred percent extremely clear that PUBG is only coming to them. But it's something that's like 
just insane about the fact that I feel bad for all these like other like community people that have to respond to these questions because it feels like someone at Microsoft just has like a, a sniper trained on their head <laughs> at all times. You cannot like let alone mention the like like PS4 or Sony. You can't even like say the word like other consoles. You can't say put those two words together in a sentence or they will fucking kill you. You have to just keep on reiterating this like. Well, no, we're just working really hard to bring PUBG to the Xbox sooner and give the Xbox community the best PUBG experience possible. It's like, I'm the, is it going to go anywhere else? We're really focusing on this Xbox. But if you're focusing, that means you're probably then at some point going to... We're, we're doing the Xbox version of the game. It's like, but are you doing... Can you answer this question without saying the fucking word Xbox? Is this coming to any other platform than PC and Xbox? And, and it's... Just insane to have to watch this and see the games press, like like uh, GameSpot and stuff, have to like write these articles and amend an article two times to just like update it over and over to be like, well, now this statement I think makes it a bit more clear that it's probably going to come to other places. Oh, but then this person says something that makes that a little more sub- uh, suspect because you know they're a news outlet; they have to go by what people say. They can't just say, but of course it's absolutely obviously going to come to the PS4 because they can't quote anyone saying it. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a bizarre set of circumstances. It's really fucking annoying, is what it is. <laughs> all right, um, Crackdown Three was also delayed to 2018. Yes, that was part of all this. Wanted to note that because we were thinking either Crackdown Three would be delayed by a long stretch. Or we talked about City Three, yeah, or it would be um, another Mass Effect Andromeda of a game right. that clearly was like not finished until the day it came out, and then was still not finished. Yeah, and then never got finished, and won't get DLC. Those bit of news from this week, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so hey, maybe that's a good thing for Crackdown Three. It is a yeah. weird thing in that that was going to be the launch day release for the Xbox One X, and now the Xbox One X will not be launching with an exclusive, which is a weird strategy. But we'll see how it works yeah. out for them. I mean, it definitely sort of like, it like confirms our suspicions from E3 that it's like. This game was not like you, you. Microsoft was really pushing to try to show this game off at E3. Because, and, hey, yeah. kudos to them for delaying it, absolutely, and doing yeah. what they needed to. And hopefully, Forza will carry them through the year. But boy, this is a dry year for Xbox exclusives, yeah. which is and, really unfortunate for them because it's like the most potent year for Sony exclusives, like since like the heyday of the PS3. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Nintendo is tearing up the fucking charts. Yeah. I mean, we're getting a new Zelda, a new Mario. All these other things. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Xbox, this is not the best year for them to be launching a console, methinks. Yeah. Because they don't really have the games. The only Xbox, the only game I've bought on Xbox all year is Tacoma, um, which is right, yeah. a partial exclusive. Uh, and you know what? No, I have pre ordered Destiny. Not an exclusive, but that's where I play Destiny. So, there you go. There you go. I got the I got the hundred dollar edition for ninety dollars because Amazon had gift cards for ten percent off. Well, there you go. It's smart shopping right that there. That hot pre order exclusive limited. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I really just wanted to pre order it so I didn't have to think about it anymore sure, and yeah. it would preload at some point <laughs> because that's not a game I'm going to want to download on day one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, well, I cannot wait to see how big Destiny Two is. <laughs> oh, yeah, like especially by the end of its lifetime, it'll be oh, two hundred gigabytes. I know. Uh, man, I got. We're not talking about this today because the game just came out and we haven't played it. But I got Uncharted: The Lost Legacy in the mail today, uh-huh. and I love looking at. I'm like, oh, this is like the you know, it's not a, it's a, it's a full game, but it's not like a, a giant Uncharted game. It's a forty dollar release. Look at the back of the box. How big is this game? Fifty gigabytes. It's like, man, nothing is less than fifty gigabytes anymore. Yeah. I don't get it. Anyway. Um, Preview for next week. We'll talk about that game. Uh, one other thing from Gamescom. I don't know if this was at Gamescom, but around this time, the tra- first trailer 
for Shenmue 3 came out. Yes, this was part of Gamescom. Okay, a game you would be forgiven for forgetting about because right. the Kickstarter was years ago at this point. Yeah, it was like 2014 or 2015. Yeah, yeah um, it was one of the big surprises at an old uh, Sony conference at this point when the PS4 was still young and yeah, blossoming. That was when they announced like the Final Fantasy VII remake and everything. Yeah, so uh, we finally got some footage, about a two-minute little teaser. I know nothing about Shenmue, really. Um, I thought it uh, had some pretty music. Other than that, I have no way to judge this, but I was curious about your thoughts because you love Shenmue. Yeah, Shenmue's fucking awesome. Shenmue's a great game. And, and it's something where like it's hard to sort of draw a lot of conclusions by the trailer because it definitely looked early because the game's not like sort of like theorized to come out, let's use that word, till like late 2018. And even then I imagine it's fairly likely that'll get pushed to 2019. Because like it, cause it's so like a lot of like the facial animation stuff is very stiff or non-existent on some of the characters. Like, no, the main character has basically no facial animation at all. Which I, if you know one thing about Shinbu or should know one thing about Shinbu is that Shinbu one back in like 1999 was a showcase for like super advanced uh, facial animation at the time. So I don't expect that Yu Suzuki and his team are going to go with no facial animation as like the complete inverse of what Shinbu used to be. But yeah, like I'm I. I'm really excited for Shinbu 3. I'm excited just to see what that game is going to be. Like, I think it, I would not go in with super high expectations because it's been so long since Shinbu 2 and it is a Kickstarter game. It's having to go through all these weird channels to get made. But it is really sort of like gratifying to see that it is getting made because, you know, Yu Suzuki is a great classic old, you know, Japanese uh, Sega game designer. And just, you know, Shinbu was his, like, you know, that was his project. Like, that was his baby. And then having, like, him trying to work so hard to get that to come up. And then the Shinmu uh, community is so passionate and has wanted the continuation of that story for so long. I'm just happy it's getting made because it's the kind of thing that never fucking happens. Like, that never gets made. It's always a thing that's like... It would be like if in a more slightly more reasonable time span that, like, Firefly had, like, come back in some way and those fans were like... It's fucking awesome like you're actually like that's something that somehow actually worked or I mean it's kind of like the Serenity movie was sort of like that yeah. and, and so it's just the kind of thing that's so rare to have you know somewhat like a creative uh, individual being able to sort of continue their, their dream project and having that like uh, fan community be able to sort of get what they've been asking for even if again I would be I, would, I think it would be a huge mistake to go into this expecting it to be like the greatest game ever made but it's going to be I think a very fascinating game at the very least any chance we'll get Shenmue 1 and 2 on modern consoles? There have been persistent rumors about of that for like two years. I think it has to happen at some point. Like Sega can put those games out. I think there's they would have to probably change some stuff because there was a lot of product placement. Like there's like Coca-Cola stuff. And although some of that product placement was already removed for the American release originally. So I think they can figure something out. I think they'll, they'll put out HD yeah, remakes of those games. But those are pretty unaccessible at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Um, also, definitely, like, one of the big things is I think Shinmu needs to be... Shinmu 1 needs to be available in the Western market with, like, the Japanese voiceover because the English dub for that game was very ambitious and, like, is remarkable for how ambitious it was at the time, but it is not very good. And, kind of like and, Final Fantasy X or something. Sure, something like that. But, I mean, but even worse than that, it's just something where, like, that the story of that game is very different if you're getting the Japanese, yeah. like, language stuff part of it. So, yeah, I, I think they should make, like... Definitive editions of, of yeah. Shinmu 1 and 2. Alright, one last uh, state of announcements, which is uh, Final Fantasy 15 has announced some new stuff. Uh, it is coming to PC, which is cool. I know my oh, right, brother yeah. is super excited for that because he's got a big gaming PC. And uh, when Final Fantasy 15 came out, he could only play it on Xbox One, where it 
if you've only played it on PS4, you think Final Fantasy XIII is a beautiful game. And then you look at it on Xbox One and you're like, ooh, the Xbox One is not as powerful. Uh-huh. And anyway, hopefully that gets an Xbox One X patch is all sure, I'll say. Yeah. But um, he's very excited for that because it's going to be a full 4K release and all that. And that's yeah. good. Final Fantasy XV is a beautiful game. Yeah. That is definitely a game to show off a really expensive rig on. Yes, so yeah. that's cool that they're doing that. I know uh, Hajime Tabata really wanted to do that, so I'm glad he got to. Um, Final Fantasy XV is also getting a mobile edition Okay, Which is, yeah. have you seen this? Yes, I have seen it's this. It's very bizarre. It's going to come out later this year, and it's like Final Fantasy XV with like chibi versions of the characters. It's a 10 chapter like episodic story, but they're putting it all out at once, and you can get like episode one for free. And it'll like retell, it's not like they've remade all of Final Fantasy XV in chibi form. No, that'd be absurd. Yes, but they've done like a retelling of the story with the chibi stuff and some simplified touchscreen controls. No real, I can't really get a sense on what this thing is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, they also really heavily implied that it's going to come to Switch. And by it, I mean Final Fantasy XV. Whether that is the full game or the mobile version, we don't know. How the full Final Fantasy XV would run yeah. on the Switch, I'm not sure. Yeah. So it's probably the mobile version, but I don't know. We'll see. I... Maybe the, there'll be like a special in-between. of like, like It's kind of like the mobile version, but it has more of the actual game stuff in it. Final Fantasy XV at 10 frames per second on sure. Nintendo yeah. Switch. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, the Switch can do many things. It probably cannot run Final Fantasy XV. Yeah, I would not think um, so. Given that the Xbox One had pretty significant issues with it. It would be like, pretty amazing to see the Switch try to do some of the summon animations in that game, though. Like oh that, God. I feel like your Switch would just melt. Yes. That little fan would go into overdrive. So yeah, Final Fantasy XV... We haven't talked about it much, but that game is alive and kicking in the absolute weirdest ways, where it yeah. is a single-player linear experience that they are treating like an online multiplayer game... And I loved Final Fantasy XV as much as anyone on the planet. And I really yeah. have not gone back to it because I played the game. And one day I might play it again and see all that stuff. But, you know, I really haven't gone back to it. So I don't know. It's, they're, they're clearly treating it as like an evolving thing. And I guess maybe this is their replacement for doing like fifteen two and things like right. that. But who knows? I It's been a weird ride for that game. But I don't know. Nice to see it's coming to PC. And yeah. I don't know what that mobile version is. But we'll find out. Yeah, I'm curious to see also like if it will get a sort of modding scene or anything on the PC of how locked locked it down that stuff will be because I think there's there would be a lot of interesting potential. Well, there. and this this will be the first Final Fantasy to come out to PC like within the relative lifetime of the game right, itself, yeah. not, not like the Final Fantasy VII on PC, which was like 20 years later, right? Or 10 finally came out a couple of years ago. So yeah, I uh, that'll be interesting to see because this has not happened before. Um, all right, so Sean, that's all the news, that's all the stuff. Now we can get into our spoiler reviews. We're going to talk right. Sonic Mania, then we're going to talk Twin Peaks. But let's start with Sonic Mania. We talked about it a little bit last week. Yeah. And we thought it was awesome. What do you think now, Sean? You finished the game. Well, tell us what you've played, I guess, also. I mean, so I've finished the whole game. I haven't had enough time to, like, go back and do, like, you know, a full Knuckles playthrough. And I haven't done, gotten all the Chaos Emeralds yet. I'm kind of, like, waiting to do that. Because, but I am having fun just sort of playing it sort of like how I normally played Sonic games. Because Sonic the Hedgehog 3... While it does have a save feature, one, I think my cart of Sonic the Hedgehog 3 on the Sega Genesis kind of had a slightly, uh, maybe not great battery, so because that save would not always stick. And I just liked playing that game and then like Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and stuff um, when we had written that one because we didn't own it. But I liked playing of just like playing the first couple of levels and being like, that was fun, and, and like putting it down and doing something else because, the, you know, that Sonic the Hedgehog was designed in that kind of era where even if it was a home console game, 
it had that kind of arcade sensibility underneath it. You know, it's a side-scrolling platformer. It wasn't a huge RPG, so it had the live system. It had like these continues and game and like hard game overs, and you had to go back to the very beginning of the game and play it through. And so, Sonic Mania retains so much of the core spirit and design ethos of classic Sonic the Hedgehog games that it is made like one of those games. So I have had fun going in and doing the sort of the no save mode, where if you do that, you can use some of the secrets you've unlocked in the game. Like the different, you can use the Insta Shield from Sonic 3 and Knuckles, which is my preferred way to play the game. I wish you could just use that on a normal save because I think that I have such a muscle memory around using the Insta Shield, which is sort of the move you have in Sonic 3, where if you jump and hit the jump button again, you get this like brief, like like what is, has to be like one to two frames of like this flash around Sonic that slightly extends the amount of like the space around him to do damage, and also I think can kind of make him invincible towards projectiles if you time it like perfectly. And so I have a lot of muscle memory around using that, so I've had fun doing that. You can also unlock the super peel-out move that's from Sonic CD, where if you press up and jump, um, Sonic will run in place, and it's kind of like a faster version of the, the spin dash from Standing Still. And so I've just had fun kind of like going around and like playing the first couple levels as Knuckles, replaying the first couple of levels as like Sonic only with some of those other abilities, playing like the first couple of levels as Tails, and haven't like mounted a full like, I'm going to go all the way through the game again playthrough yet. So I'm kind of surprised. I've played more of this than you. Okay, Because yeah. I beat the game in Sonic and Tails. I did a, a standard, like, default playthrough with Sonic and Tails. Beat that. And then I have started uh, playthroughs for both Knuckles and Tails. I've gotten about halfway through with Knuckles, and I'm almost done with my Tails playthrough. Um, on my Sonic and Tails, like my original playthrough, I did go back in, because once you've cleared the game, you can go into any level and just play it as you want. Yeah. And that means you can actually farm Chaos Emeralds pretty quick. So I've yeah. gotten all seven Chaos Emeralds, and I've seen the true ending. Okay. And I have also, um, through my Tails playthrough, I've gotten all seven Chaos Emeralds. So I'm now on the final levels, and it's kind of cool to have Super Tails... For the end of the game. Does Super Tails still have like the three flickies around him from Sonic 3 and Knuckles? He does not. Oh, that's unfortunate. I'm sorry. I was actually a little disappointed. Super Tails does not... He has like a glow, but it's not like Sonic where he becomes yellow. And, yeah. I mean, that's basically his the Super Tails. I guess it's... Like, because the Super Tails transformation was only Sonic 3 and Knuckles if you got all the Chaos Emeralds and then all the Super Emeralds in that game. And he it's basically the same character model with a slightly different hue to his fur. But, like, the cool thing was he had these three yeah. uh, Super Flickies, which are the birds that fly around him and do damage and attack things. Yeah, so the only character I have not gotten uh, all the Chaos Emeralds for is Knuckles, although I'm close. I've gotten, like, five of the Chaos Emeralds for him because I'm pretty good at knowing where those are now. And I really like the Chaos Emerald minigame in this yeah, game. Yeah, they're, they're probably the best Chaos Emerald special stages that Sonic has had. I, I would say by far, yes. Um, so I've played it, yeah, I've basically played it once all the way through, start to finish. Tails, I'm almost done with an all the way through playthrough. I've dicked around in other modes. Um, I, I even, the last time I got into playing with the debug mode, which is a crazy weird yeah, part of the game. Yeah. So yeah, I've played a lot of this game. Like I also got into... Um, trying to get some of the medals, which is how you unlock the extras, which is one of my yeah. more significant complaints with the game. I think it's a really messy system, and I don't particularly like how they use that minigame in this, but I have been diving into that a little more and trying to farm some of that. But I have been playing a lot of Sonic Mania, and some of it is that I have it on the Switch, right. and so I can take it with me really easily. I was also playing a little bit of it today while I was waiting for my dog at the groomer. Um, it's a good game. I can... Uh, my dogs like to be more up in like uh, the living room area, away from where our my TV and like my game systems are. So I can bring my Switch up there with them, and and because I'm in their presence, they will calm down a little bit, and then when they fall asleep, I can play Sonic Mania. There so it's been good. But uh, yeah, I love the fucking shit out of this game. It's it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Really fucking good. 
And when I said I love it, even when I hate it, what I mean is that I also find it a brutally difficult game at some points. Sure. In the way that I... And and some people might not agree with me on this. I've always found the Sonic Genesis games brutally difficult in a lot of ways. Like... And I, in ways I never think of, for instance, Mario in that way. Like, uh, some Mario side-scrolling ones can be tough, but never to the degree that a Sonic 1, 2, or 3 are to me, where those games can be really challenging and confusing in some ways. But, like, fun. Like, a good challenge. And, and Sonic Mania definitely has some of that. And you've probably seen me on Twitter just sometimes be... And I don't know if the tone comes across. It's not anger at the game. It's sort of like, oh my god, how the fuck do I do this? But I'm having fun figuring out how to do it. Sure, um, yeah. So yeah, I found it really challenging, but the, the, my number one takeaway with Sonic Mania is this game is not just a celebration of the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, and it's a great celebration of Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. It's a celebration of the art of creativity itself. Like, this is such a creative game. This has so much love and passion poured into every frame. It is so bursting with surprises and fun things to discover that I've played a shit ton of this game, and I'm still going through levels and finding new paths and new ideas and new oh, yeah. animations and things. I just, I love it. I, you know, I would go off what I said last week where it does feel to a, many degrees like just pure from the tap Genesis era Sonic the Hedgehog, but it also feels like more than that. Um, this, I, I might say this is my new favorite Sonic game. I think this it is. is a, it's for me. Yeah. yeah I, I think, think it's, it's like, it's, it's, it feels a bit unfair just because the game can do so many things that old Sonic can't. Yeah. But like, you know, if you're not taking like, cultural influence and stuff into account is just like as a game how good is it i think it's the best sonic game because it builds i agree on on i mean it is the game is to me like what the like really ill-fated sonic the hedgehog 4 project that's that sega had several years ago like this is what that should have been yes like it feels so much like an a straight continuation of sonic 3 and knuckles like it takes all the ideas of sonic 3 and knuckles that of the ways that because Sonic 3 and Knuckles before this was my favorite one. And because I thought it was... The Sonic franchise had this really good progression from Sonic 1 that is a, a solid game, but like does not fully found itself in terms of its level design and stuff. To Sonic the Hedgehog 2 that really refined it and found this like really strong core and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is this really solid game. And then Sonic 3 and Knuckles found all these interesting ways to complicate that by adding more playable characters and making the, more, the other playable characters like Tails... Um, differentiate themselves from Sonic in more ways because in Sonic the Hedgehog 2 Tails can't fly if you're playing as him and stuff like that and so in Sonic 3 and Knuckles you have three playable characters and they're all very different you have all the different shield types that have different abilities the levels are way more complicated there are like bosses um, at, at the end of Act 1 so there are mid bosses now and that was not a thing in Sonic 1 and Sonic 2 so Sonic 3 and Knuckles like brought all those things to the forefront added more like little nuggets of story and context transitioned between the different levels instead of you just ending a level and starting at the next one instead there's a little thing that shows how you go from angel island zone to hydro Hydro city zone and sonic mania takes all of those ideas and then like pushes them one step further even beyond it it kind of feels like from a design sense the sort of like the sega saturn sonic game that sega never actually made that like they should have made like the actual continuation that had more hardware behind it that had like that sort of step forward in the design philosophy of making the levels even more like complicated and have even more roots and and more intricate and stuff but you know sega canned that sonic game and never really figured out what to do with it and this feels like somehow you went back in time and plucked that out from like 1996 or something and, and plopped it down here and other than obvious things like the widescreen and, and, and the like the degree to which the sprite animation is is as stellar as it is, it feels like it could have been a game from that time. Absolutely. And for ninety nine percent better and for, you know, one percent in various areas worse, I might say. But overall, like, yeah, it is 
exactly that. But it does also feel like, you know, because this is a game, one of the most remarkable things about it is Sega basically went out into the community to some degree. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are professionals. They have done professional projects before. They didn't, like, pluck someone off of a message board and have them make a Sonic game. Right. Um, you know, Christian Whitehead and Pagoda Games, they've worked with Sega on other things. But, like... People who came out of the community and had a lifelong love of Sonic and had to make this game. And you can feel that. Like, this feels like a game with 20, 30... Not 30 at this point, Sonic isn't that old. But, like, 20, 25 years of deep, deep understanding of what makes Sonic good. You know? Um, Kind of like I would compare it a little bit to when Nintendo... um, And this is a little different because this was on a... You know, Nintendo didn't take someone outside Nintendo to make this. When they made New Super Mario Bros. in 2005. And it just felt like... Oh man, these people get it so much. And I think Sonic Mania is that to the nth degree. Yeah. And just, it is so daring and it is so exciting. And pretty much every level in the game is a hit. There's like one act of one zone I don't love. Other than, I mean, that's a really high batting average still, you know, because there yeah. are 12 full zones, so 24 levels. There's, there's only like two bosses that I don't like in the game, and there are a lot yeah. of bosses in the game. Most 24 of them, bosses. I think, are amazing. I agree. And there's, yeah, probably two or three bosses I don't like. Um, yeah, and I think all of the 24 levels feel very differentiated. This yeah. is, like, Act 1 and Act 2 almost always feel like very different beasts. The animation and the graphics are absolutely astoundingly beautiful. And a, a statement that, like, pixel art is just as valid a way of doing a game these days as, you know, hyper-realistic 3D visuals. Because yeah. this is one of the most beautiful games I've ever seen. Yeah, for me, it's like, it's just that sweet, sweet sprite animation. Like, that stuff that... so good. It's so rare that you... Because even, like, you know, indie games that have, like, sort of sprite or pixel-based graphics still don't have that level of, like, fidelity and, like, animation quality to them. And it feels like... If, if people have ever played played the uh, Metal Slug games, like those are games you go to just be like, these are the most amazing sprite animations just ever made. They're so smooth. They're so intricate. Just like type in like Metal Slug GIF into Google and you will spend an hour just looking at all these intricate, amazing animations. And Sonic Mania is like that. Like it, it has, it's not just that it's like a retro style. It's a retro style done to a fidelity and with like a level of like craft and technical expertise that was not possible at the time. And it's such a good look. Like, there's so many frames of animation of just every little thing. Like, Sonic just looking up. I'll just do that every now and then and just be like, oh my god. There's, like, you can't you can't even see that there are frames of animation, which is usually in sprite animation. It's very apparent that, like, oh, there are three or four frames of Sonic looking up in Sonic 3. And this is like, it could be fucking 20. I have no idea. It's super fluid. His look up animation I love where he looks up and blinks and just has yeah. so much character. And I saw people talking about this when the opening movie... For the game, which sadly you have to wait through the tile screen to play. I wish it just played at the start. But anyway, the opening movie that is with this came out on YouTube that it feels like this game understands that Sonic wasn't just like rebel attitude. He was also fun and childlike in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah. Got sanded off of him a lot in later era where he's just like, I'm Sonic, yo! You know, and stuff like that. Yeah, the extreme sports era Sonic. Right, like... And it feels like they've brought so much of that back. And so much of where this game gets, like, Sonic as a character right to me is in the look-up sprite animation. And he has just this look of, like, innocent wonder to him. And I love that. But you you have not played Standalone with Tails yet? No. Have uh, I have a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Tails is the best animation. Okay. He is amazing. Like, when he gets going, like, the main fast animation, right, yeah. he has this look of, like, steely determination on his face, but, like, youthful, because Tails is a little kid. Yeah. And I love it. It just makes me think of, like... The Sonic cartoons when I was a kid, and like Tails going around with Sonic on a hunt for chili dogs or something. Sure, yeah. Or all of his animations when he's flying, or it's really great when he's underwater. You can't 
do the tailspin, but you can swim. And the way he like uses his arms and swims, yeah. it's great. Knuckles also has phenomenal animations. The, the enemies all do. Uh, Robotnik slash Eggman, whatever you want. To, he's Robotnik in this one. Yeah. Um, he looks amazing. I think he is actually he's still Eggman in this one. Because like okay. when you're in Studiopolis, you can see in the background. Oh, right. Like, Egg. TV yeah. And stuff. Yeah. But in our hearts, he might be he's, still Robotnik. I mean, I think technically for the American versions of the games, he's supposed to be Ivo, quote, Eggman Robotnik. Okay, then I'm good. I, Eggman slash Robotnik. Uh, he has great animations. All the enemies, um, they do some crazy stuff with one of my favorite stages, the Mirage Saloon Zone, and some yeah. of the characters you meet there. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, no, the, visually, this game is off the charts good. And, and a, as yeah, you're right, a significant evolution. Because we've had a lot of throwback sprite animation games in this era. Um, another one I would say is exemplary in this regard is Shovel Knight. But they limit themselves a little more sometimes. Yeah, like that's Shovel... a bit more like 8-bit Mega Man yeah. aesthetic. Uh-huh. And although I will say Spectre of Torment, the one that came out this year, goes a little further with some of that. Um, but yeah, no, Sonic is in the general aesthetic, but when it wants to go further, it doesn't limit itself. Yeah. And there is a technical acumen brought to this project that is super impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the star of the fucking show is the music, right? It's so good. It's yeah. so good. I, I tweeted this. In a world where Persona 5 sadly doesn't exist, Sonic Mania is the best soundtrack of 2017. Sure. Hands that's, down. That's saying a lot because this is also Nier Automata and Gravity Rush 2 came out this year. So I would I, Easily I would say better than either of those. I think Sonic Mania has an off-the-charts fucking great soundtrack. And it has a head start because it's working with like... A whole era of game music from right, the early yeah. Genesis. I mean, it's got but, that chemical plant zone. Oh, it's so good. But it takes those songs and makes them even better. And then the Act 2 versions of all of them is only kind of loosely based on it, yeah. but goes crazy with it. Uh, my brother, who's a composer, was kind of talking to me about this, that what it often does is it'll use like very um, faithful chiptune um, like instruments in the Act 1 stuff. And then in Act 2, they'll stop limiting themselves to that and use like some more modern synths and instruments and samples and whatnot yeah and it's a really cool effect yeah the quality of the music tends to sound a bit more like like sonic cd's soundtrack did than, yeah. than like them trying to sort of like ape the sega genesis sound chip which just isn't possible no it's so so good like we played at the top of the show the studiopolis one which yeah. is is the one that sticks in my head the most but there are so many good ones like the mirage saloon song in act one i that's like my only complaint with that level is it's too short because I want to hear the music more. Because yeah. it's so good and the way it like uses that little like, you know, do 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 in the middle of it. Yeah. Oh, it's all of it is fantastic. The boss music is really good. Oh, it's, Sonic Hedgehog is a franchise that has some like classically amazing boss music. Yeah. So, uh, all the little tunes, you know, they've they kept the tune for like when he's drowning, but for invincibility and speed up and some of those, they've there's new ones and they sound great getting a new life. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. The sound design and, and the music is all phenomenal. Yeah. So, uh, where else do you want to take this conversation? Because then we were talking about the general technical, like, overall look at this game. Um, you know, I want to talk about another thing I, that, that this game surprised me with a little bit. Which, okay. you know, I think, so we were both in agreement. We think this is maybe the best Sonic game ever made. Yeah. And that is not, to me, making a full dismissal of, like, everything that's happened since Sonic the Hedgehog 3 or something. Because there's been some good ones. Sure, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I love the Sonic Adventure games. And I think, I don't ever want to write off 3D Sonic entirely. Because I think, clearly, it can work. It just often hasn't. I don't think that's an inherent thing. Yeah. Um, but it is, like, this gets to the core of Sonic. And I think it also goes back to something that, in popular conversation about Sonic the Hedgehog, I think we've maybe forgotten, which is that... Sonic was never just about speed. And no, when I hear yeah, people talk no. about that, like, like, oh, this game isn't... You don't get to go fast enough sometimes. I'm not saying anyone said that about Sonic Mania specifically, just I hear that sometimes. 
Uh, it's like, well, those are really cool parts, and Sonic Mania does them better than ever because there yeah. are some go fast parts in this game that are mind blowing. But it's also about that these are linear levels, sort of, but they have all these branching paths. And sometimes you're going left instead of right, and you'll go up and down, and there's all sorts of things going on. And there's little kind of, I don't know if the puzzles is the best word, but little things you have to figure out kind of in the environment to go through on. And they kind of tax your brain, and they also are very challenging at points. And sometimes you can get really frustrated with it, but in a way that I think maybe a lot of people today probably... If, you're, if you started playing games in 2010, that kind of like frustration with trying something over and over again isn't something you're accustomed to, but sure, it can be yeah. a fun part of Sonic Mania. And I think it gets that and actually takes it a step further, where the level design is just so smart and so creative and so innovative and is so varied, where you're never doing one thing for too long, and it's constantly adding new things into the mix. And yes, it is fast-paced, but it's not always run left to right as fast as you can, which is what Sonic boils down to way too much these days. Yeah, I, I think it's just the game understands something about Sonic that, like, lots of people that have made Sonic games in the interim have, like, completely forgotten is that Sonic is not about speed, Sonic is about momentum. And it's like, yeah. those two concepts are very closely related, but they are not the same thing. Like, one of the consequences of effective, uh, you know, uh, momentum management in a Sonic game is that you're going to go fast. And then there are, like, the, like, sort of roller coaster sections that are sort of your rewards for. You know, navigating more complicated platforming bits in Sonic the Hedgehog games, where you get to like, you know, go through this whole like ridiculous thing, like go through five loop de loops and shoot through a cannon and go and like fly in, like run over the, the top of water and stuff. And you know, those are like the like go crazy fast and sort of like the spectacle moments. But by and large, Sonic distinguishes itself from something like Mario in that it is, you know, instead of being set on a largely flat plane that is about like you know a series of jumping puzzles that where you navigate enemies and different sort of like traps and pits and stuff like that. Sonic has some of the traps and pits and enemy stuff, but it is way more about trying to figure out a way to sort of manage your momentum effectively and get your way through levels. And it's like, you know, you need to get up enough speed to go up like a sheer surface or something like that. You need to like figure out how to manage that and how to like, you know, do these jumps with this like much heavier sense of momentum where Mario, like especially like over time, Mario got like better and better at just like stopping being able to turn on a dime. Whereas like Sonic has never been about that. Like Sonic is about the sense of like, you need to be very deliberate in how you are doing your jumps and where you're landing and when you're jumping again because you can't just stop. You have that momentum bringing you forward. You need to take that into account in how you're playing the game. It's the kind of thing that 3D Sonic has other than I think kind of more recently with like Sonic Generations has some of Six that Six years stuff. ago. <laughs> yeah. That like the majority of even like the Sonic Adventure games which I have a lot of fondness for never really understood that side of Sonic and, and that's like that is what the core of those games were in, in in sort of the original Genesis days. And I think it's something that if you're trying to translate that into 3D and wanted to maintain that spirit of those original games, that's like the number one thing you have to understand is it's not about running fast, it's about managing your momentum and that's what the gameplay mechanic is. And Sonic Mania is a masterclass in good platforming design. Yeah. And spe the specific kind of platforming Sonic does, because we talked about this last week and you were just addressing it here, Sonic is a weird outlier in the history oh, of video absolutely. gaming. Yeah. The Genesis trilogy with Knuckles and Sonic CD, which yeah. we haven't talked about enough, but that's a huge influence on this game, Absolutely, obviously. Yeah. Um, those four slash five games, depending on how you count, three and Knuckles, are com there's no analog to them in the history of gaming. There's not any. There's not a Sonic-esque genre. It's not like Metroid, which now you can say it's a Metroid-esque game, yeah. or something like that. It didn't become that. Even later Sonic games aren't quite that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Sonic Mania is a throwback to that. But what Sonic and Mario and all good platformers have in common to me 
is that they, they have a momentum that takes you from start to finish and feels like you have gone on a challenging, you know, journey through this level, but also one that was curated and built to, like, pull you through in the best way possible. You know, because when a yeah. Mario or Sonic level is bad is when it gets boring, where it's like there's a challenge that is, like, too sharp or something, or the momentum breaks, or, like, there's... Or you've just, like, gone through, like, a series of, like, the, like you know, like, platform, floating enemy platform, and you've done that, like, four times in a row. It's like, why do you keep on throwing this exact same challenge at me over and over again? That gets dull. Yeah, when it gets kind of rote. And Sonic Mania, to me, is, a, like I said, an absolute masterclass in this, because... You know, 24 levels through pretty much every one of them, I felt that rush of being pulled through, even if I had to go back and replay parts and whatnot. Just the overall sweep of the level. It's something that's actually very hard to explain, because Sonic Mania is not a game you can talk about in terms of what does it do well narratively. It doesn't really... It had a little story, but, you know, that's not the focus. Right. It really is about pure game design, and as pure game design, this is as good a game as has come out in 2017. Sure, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so... Um, I want to talk about some of the levels because okay, yes. there's only 12 zones, so I kind of want to just go through them and talk about them because yeah. they're so good. And it's an interesting balance where eight of them are remixes of zones from classic Sonic games, and four of them are brand new. But you never, if and I don't know uh, all the Sonic Genesis games as well as like you do because I did not own a Genesis as a kid. Right. But I still have fondness for those games, um, so I could recognize like which ones were remixes and which ones weren't. But it doesn't really matter. It all feels new and fresh and great. Although there is, as you talked about a little last week, that when you have a good remix going, there is a fun sense of like, I know this jump, but I don't know that one. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these. We start with Green Hill Zone. Because of, of course. course we do. Yes. We have to. Well, and technically we start with like a brief glimpse of Angel Island Zone before you yes. get teleported back in time. And like, again, I said this last time. Like, as someone who Sonic the Hedgehog 3 was my Sonic game, there was something so amazing about seeing that opening with that music. And then also, when you play as Knuckles, it's a like another version of what is basically Knuckles' opening from Sonic 3 and Knuckles, if you do the combined version. Yeah. It's very good. It's very nostalgic. But then, yes, they... The... Whatever the... the I've, hard-boiled heavies, I think, is what I saw. They're, they're called on sonic.wikia.com. That's what they're called. Uh, they, like, uncover some sort of secret gem that, that transports you back in time and you land up in Green Hill Zone. And, look, Green Hill Zone... Is in every fucking Sonic game or some version of it. Yeah. It is to Sonic what Born to Run is to Bruce Springsteen. Sure. He's gonna play it every night, but the adventure is in how do they like modulate it. Yeah. It's and like the Warthog level in a Halo game. It's yes. gotta be there. It's gotta be there, and this is a good Green Hill Zone because other than like two minutes of Act One, it goes off and does its own goddamn thing pretty quickly. And I love that it starts you off with this sense of immense familiarity. Like, yeah. this is one of the most played levels in games of all time. It's like Mario 1-1. But then it starts, you know, Act 1 is basically an amalgam of Acts 1, 2, and 3 of the original Green Hill Zone. Yeah. And then Act 2 is its own thing. And I love the little spin the composer, T. Lopes, puts on the music in Act 1 and then blows the doors off in Act 2. But Green Hill Zone is a blast. Yes, and just finding, for me, it was that moment where... You find a fire shield in Green Hill Zone Act One, the fire shield from Sonic Three, and it's like, oh fuck! Like, like because up to that point, it's a fairly like recognizable Green Hill Zone, and you get that, and you're like, this is okay. And then I think you could like burn the bridge or whatever if you have the fire fire shield on. It's like, it's, yeah, what the fuck? Yep, that's great. Uh, when I played through it as Knuckles and then as Tails, I found a whole under not underwater, but like a water section of the level yeah. way below that you can go down and explore that was not there before. So it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Green Hill Zone, not a ton to say about it, but they're just warming up. Because then we jump into Chemical Plant Zone. Yeah. Always one of my favorites. When they drop the needle on the Chemical Plant Zone theme, which is like the least... Yeah. Which is like the least remixed of all of them because you don't need to do anything to Uh it. It's Chemical Plant Zone. But I've always loved that level. And I think this is a... Act 1 is like a really good refinement of Chemical Plant Zone. Because that level is great in Sonic 2. It's also got some bullshit like crush deaths and things like that. Yeah, like the weird sort of like square platforms that like move around. You can very easily get, get... and it's too Switched it's too easy to drown. Like this chemical plant zone is much better designed, and then you get chemical plant zone act two, yeah. and that is probably to me the best level in the game because what it does in that's where it really announced to me like this game is something special. Is act two has this whole thing where you can like get these syringes and put gel into the chemicals that lets you bounce different directions. Yeah, it's like Portal Two Sonic the Hedgehog. Yes, it is. It's absolutely like that because you're jumping on this gel and going all around in these incredible heights and speeds. And it is so fun. And then at the end of it, yes, you get yeah. the best boss fight in the game, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an amazing like it's you know it's sort of a different conversation yes. because it doesn't use the sort of main game mechanics. But as a surprise, it is the most amazing boss fight. Maybe would be the better word for it. Which is just you land in a game of Doctor Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. Yeah. So you just play a round of Puyo Puyo against Doctor Robotnik. Doctor Robotnik. And it, I do appreciate that they. It feels like they made it pretty easy to get yeah. through because it's like. You know, I'm okay at Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine, but if you, like, I'm in the middle of a Sonic level and I get dropped into that, I'm not going to give my, like, A-game performance. And having played a ton of Puyo Puyo this year and gotten pretty good at it in Puyo Puyo Tetris for the Switch, I was like, I'm ready! I've Uh been preparing! And that was the easiest boss for me. I I was very proud I got a three combo, and I was like, man, having not played this game in... 12 years maybe yeah. like i feel very good about that through triple combo but what a what a creative little surprise they yeah. give you i love that all right and then you get studiopolis zone yes which is the first like fully original zone in the game oh it's so good yeah it's basically their take on a like the casino night sort of style zone that is you know traditional to sonic and i do appreciate that they didn't just do a straight casino zone yeah. because like of all the like remakes we need to see we don't need one that's just like a straight number another one of those i like that has a lot of the same sort of like you know bumper and flipper mechanics but it has a very different like setting and kind of feel to it because in act two is where it gets more of that where like and it's it's fun because there's, there's there's a little like uh jackpot game where there's like lottery balls coming yeah. out but there's also like you go down these martini glasses and you get points it's all very creative yeah you can get like turned into a radio wave and shot to satellite dishes and stuff which is pretty nuts yeah, Studiopolis Zone is another one of my favorites in this game. It, uh, like, as an overall zone, it, it, that or probably the Mirage Saloon are like my two favorites. But it's like visually so much fun because yeah. all of these are great visually, and they've added to the original Genesis or Sega CD graphics. But like, when they're free to just do their own thing, some of the visual creativity on display is out of this world. Like throughout the Studiopolis Zone, you have all the like posters and all the like Eggman movie propaganda. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments is when you get into this like big like glass structure. You're like, what the hell is this? And then it's a popcorn popper, and you <laughs> pop up with popcorn and then get shot out. It's just. Yeah, I had the biggest smile on my face, and I've played Studiopolis Zone several times. It is a joy. Yeah, that's probably the one that has, like, the best spectacle moments of just, yeah. like, when shit is going utterly crazy. Which is, like, that is what those casino levels were about. It was just, like, yeah. I have no idea what's going on. I've completely lost control of this game, but it is still so much fun. Yeah, because this game also, in general, to me, knows when to, like... Uh, really push the challenge and when to kind of take their foot off the gas a little bit on the challenge and let the spectacle take over because you can't really mix those two things too much or else it gets too confusing but yeah i love that one then we get um 
so after Studiopolis is Flying Battery Zone. Yes, from, I think, Sonic 3. Originally. Yeah. This is my least favorite zone in the game. Um, particularly, I think, Act 2 is really problematic in that it's got this one area where... It was until, like, my third playthrough of this that I, uh, like, I mean, third playthrough of the game that I started to figure out what the hell is going on in this part of Act 2 where you're under the ship. And it's just, it will fling you off very easily and there's these electrical things. Just, like, the challenge ramps up really hard in that part. I didn't have any problem with that section, I thought. Okay, both me and my brother. My brother, like, just as much as me. So I was not alone in this. I thought I was crazy and then he played it and... Thought Maybe you're both thing. just crazy. Maybe okay. it's, it's a disease of the Lack family. You can't handle I, I like, flying battery zone. I it? like the overall animation. I love Act 1. I love the music. It's good. Um, and I actually really like both boss fights in this one. You have this garbage compactor one. Yeah, that one's good. And then yeah. you have the one where you have to get like Spider Eggman over to the um, spikes. Yeah. I will say, as Knuckles, that fight is almost impossible. Okay. Like there's just something about like you have to do it from jump not almost impossible. You get it you get it figured out, but like you cannot just jump up and hit him across. You have to do it from like the pole and swing across. And he's a little you know, Knuckles is heavier and slower. So it's just it's really hard at a certain point and you have to try it over and over again. And that whole level, Knuckles does not feel like he works in that level all that well. But no, I, I like this. I still like this. This is my least yeah. favorite part of the game. I still had fun with it. And I've played Flying Batteries on a lot because as Knuckles it took me like ten tries. Okay, yeah. So Yeah, because for me like I, it's definitely not one of my favorite zones because I've never really liked the like up in the air zones in Sonic that much. Yeah. Like I mostly had just flashbacks both in this level and then one of the later levels of playing through the games uh, on the Xbox Live Arcade releases where I tried to make sure I like played through all of them with Supersonic and then it's like got to the, those levels. It's like don't turn it to Supersonic on Flying Battery Zone or right. or some of the other zones. It's just like it's just not possible. You're going to die immediately because you go way too fast. Yeah, so anyway, Flying Battery Zone, and then we get uh, the next original one, which is Press Garden Zone. Yes, yeah. And Press Garden Zone is probably the least uh, impressive of the originals, but I still really like it. I think it's got great music. It's this, it's an interesting amalgam of different, like, visual influences. Yeah, and and like, like it feels like it's a bunch of different sort of versions of other Sonic levels, like, stuck together, but is not necessarily a straight riff on one. It feels like kind of a, a visual riff on, like, Sonic 1, but, like, done with better technology yeah. or something. I mean, like, it's mostly, it's, I always get the two, because there's the second level from Sonic 1. Marble Zone. Marble Zone. And then I think it's Marble Garden Zone in Sonic 3, which is the third level of Sonic 3. Yeah. And this feels like it's a mix of those two, because you have kind of like the falling chandeliers and stuff. You have some of the mechanics uh, from uh, Marble Garden Zone from Sonic 3 in Press yeah. Garden. Um, but And this one kind of snuck up on me Because my first playthrough This one's kind of on the easier side And I kind of breezed through it between It's sandwiched between two harder zones So I didn't think much of it And then when I played it again It really started to grow on me Particularly the second act Where you've got all these like cherry blossom trees in the back right, yeah. And they're falling It's really beautiful And I think there's some really clever level design And some great music Like this one is Like I said there's four completely original zones I love all of them I think they're great This one is probably the least Notable in that it does the fewest like new big things, yeah. but I really like it. And you know, we'll talk about this later. Like, what would we want out of a sequel? More of this kind of stuff, just yeah. like this, this sense of invention, which I love. So yeah, um, press garden zone. I don't really remember either of the bosses from this one. They're no, good. I can't. I think one of them is a riff on. Although maybe that one was from Lava Reef. Like some of them kind of run together. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, a lot of bosses. Um, then you get your first Sonic CD level, which is Stardust Speedway Zone. Yes, yeah, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting just because the game is pulling more in terms of level design from the Sonic 1, 2, 3 tradition, because Sonic CD is a 
kind of a different kind of game. So it is interesting seeing them like kind of take some of the ideas from Sonic CD, which they do in some later levels as well, and try to like fit that in the more straightforward, like more traditional Sonic style. Because Sonic CD is like kind of a game about backtracking because you travel like backwards and forwards in time to destroy these different things, objects in the level. So you, it almost feels more like a Mario game in that way. Yeah, I'll admit, I've Sonic CD is the one I've played the least of all the original Sonics because I can never figure it out. It, it is confusing because it is not like it. So you have to kind of change the way you think about Sonic right. to play Sonic CD. Um, but it fits here really well. Like, it feels yeah. like a good change of pace. It's visually very different. It's that very kind of metallic, grungy kind of Sonic CD yeah. thing. But no, I love it. And the boss... The big boss at the end of this one is Metal Sonic. Yes. After you go to Act 2 where you go to the full, like, you do the Sonic CD thing of running through a sign and goes, future. And then you go into the future and you end up, I guess it technically would have been present day Stardust Speedway Zone because you were were in the past. Yeah. And yes, and then you fight Metal Sonic, which this is the best Metal Sonic fight. It's so fucking good. It's so fun. It's got such cool visuals. Like, Metal Sonic himself has so much tood. Yeah. Just just wagging that finger. This was a challenging one for me. There's the part where you you have to um because it's a multi-tiered boss fight yeah um which there's not a ton of in this game but this one is a big like three-tiered one and the middle tier which is where you're in the room with metal sonic and he's in a big machine and there's this little guy that comes out and you have to let him turn into a ball and then try to yeah when you're fighting there. silver sonic yeah. yeah for whatever reason it took me a couple of runs through startup speedway zone to get good at that and then when i played it through his tails again i i knew what i was doing and it was better or I was better at it, but I still liked it all the way through. And then the third phase where you're just kind of chasing him around and there's the wall of uh, spikes coming at you and there's the big Robotnik statue in the middle that's turning. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, because it's like, because I love those ones, like, because the first part of the fight where it's like more of that kind of race thing and then the last part of the fight is pulling from the fight um, with him from Sonic CD. But I do, I really like that middle part where it's kind of referencing a little bit. I think it's one of the Game Gear games and then also... Um, the last level of Sonic the Hedgehog 2 where you fight, uh, I forget what it, like the fan name is is for him, but like the sort of pre-Metal Sonic, Metal Sonic, and, and I like those fights against, I like in any video game I like when you the boss fight is against another enemy that is like, like your character, and it's like similarly proportioned and has kind of similar moves, and it's not just you fighting a giant like monstrosity or a giant robot. And there's something, in Sonic games, it's very rare that you have that kind of boss fight. And there's something fun about, like, having to square off against a more evenly, mm-hmm. sort of, like, faced opponent. Yeah, but uh, it's it's cool. And that, this whole zone is great. Like, yeah. um, Thomas, my brother, has been playing this. And he loves Sonic games, but more, like, the Dreamcast GameCube era games. Because that's what he was playing as, as a right. kid. And I don't think he loves the 2D games as much. But I remember when he was playing through... So he wasn't as excited for Sonic Mania. And, you know, I get it. It's, these aren't for everyone. But, like, when he got to start a Speedway Zone, I remember him coming and saying to me, like, holy crap, this was... this was That was amazing. Yeah, it's really it's, good. Yeah, it's good. It's um, a really good, like, point for, like, the kind of, like, the midway, middle section of the yeah. game. It feels like this nice little, like, crescendo as it moves to different stuff. Because that's the exact halfway point. That's yeah. Zone 6. Zone 7 is Hydra City Zone. Yes. Which I got completely mixed up. And I thought this was a remake of... What's Ooh, called Labyrinth Zone, Labyrinth zone yeah. from Sonic 1, which is... A very different. I mean, they're both water zones, but yeah. they're very different zones. Well, and it was just because of the bubbles and like the things where you spin around and you have to jump and some of the like, platforming mechanics in the water. But I have not played the old ones in a while, so I was right. just thinking of that. But no, Hydro City Zone is from Sonic 3, and I don't remember it as well. It's but. so good. It has the best fucking music, and the, 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 the remix of the music is really good in Sonic yeah. Mania. But anyway, my, my point was I... 
I kind of looked at that, and because I remembered Labyrinth Zone more, I was like, oh, fuck a water zone. And by the end, I was like, that was yeah. a hell of a water Labyrinth zone. Labyrinth Zone is the one that has one of the weirdest openings where Sonic is, like, in this, like, water slide shoot thing that, like, yeah. just goes on infinitely and repeats and repeats and repeats until you jump out of it. It's just like, what the fuck is ha- How did this make these cotton, this Moby sloop or something? What is going on? Labyrinth Zone also has, its Act 3 boss is one of the hardest things you will ever do in a video game. Oh, yeah, game. where you have to run up and, like, yeah. try to catch up to him. Yeah. And it kind of feels like the end of uh, um, this one uh, Hydro City Zone Act 1 here is like you're getting revenge on Eggman for this that because you do a brief version of it and then you're in his like pod yeah, and you then just you're, suck you're, him up and... I mean it's amazing because you're controlling his machine from the Act 2 boss fight from Sonic 3 from okay. the original Hydro That's City Zone yeah. it, was, it drops the mines and then has the propeller that pulls him up and he's like uh, in the the water with with scuba gear, it's it's really it's one of the, the more creative ideas of like it's just an inverse version of the, a boss fight from Sonic Three, which is one of my favorite boss fights from Sonic Three because it's a very interesting one. Yeah, no, but uh, both acts of Hydra City Zone they're pretty unique. They don't leave you in the water too long, which is something the worst water levels in Sonic do. Yeah, they they feel very varied. There's a lot of cool little puzzle mechanics. I really like this yeah. one. Yeah, and it just riffs on because Hydra City Zone is one of my favorite zones. I think it's by far the best water zone from the original Sonic games, and it's it's because it's level two from Sonic Three, so I played it a lot. Um, and I really love the way they complicate some of the design elements, like the spinning, like you. Just, getting just shot through the water and having to grab the, the poles and slide up and down and, like, the, the wall that comes for you and stuff. They remix a lot of the design elements of Hydra City Zone in, in really cool ways. Yeah, nice. Um, and then the second boss is the one where Eggman is chasing you and you're, like, you're, go, you're basically being run through one of those just, like, funnels of water. Yeah. And you have to touch these bombs and then they'll go to him and when they blow up, he'll shoot a bubble out and that's how you get an air bubble. Some of that was, I wish it was communicated slightly better through the gameplay because I found it a little confusing, but it's still a really cool boss Yeah, fight. it's one of those where, like, the mechanics of the boss fight are so creative that you do have to, like, die once or twice to be able to get your head around, like, okay, this is what's happening. Yeah, so... Um, but it's a cool one. And then uh, after Hydra City Zone, you get my fucking zone, Mirage Saloon Zone. Very the good. third original. Oh, it's so great. Act yeah. one, you're on, like, Tails plane. Yeah, it's basically like Sky Chase Zone from Sonic Hedgehog 2, where you're standing yeah. on the plane and have to fight the, like, I think it even has, like, the turtle guys that are in front of that level. I love that. It even reminded me in uh, Super Mario Land, there's a couple levels where you're, people forget this about Super Mario Land, where you, like, become a plane and you do this, like, shooting stuff. Oh, It's a yes. really interesting thing. Yeah. But it's just, it kind of reminded me of that, Jesus. of, like, a platformer that just suddenly changes itself, uh-huh. and it's very different and, like, mobile in a totally different kind of verticality way, but I love it. And just the visuals here with all the Western themes and the yeah. backdrop, like, the, for lack of a better term, skybox in this zone is so cool. I mean, that moment in Act 1 where, like, after you're, like, on the plane and then you catch up to the train, and it, it almost is like the opening scene from Indiana Jones the last Crusade is what it made me think of. Like, you have yeah. to get on this train and are fighting Because it shows you the whole train yeah. before, and then you get on the back and you run through it. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And then the, the boss there at the end of Act 1 is where you're on the plane, and there's this, like, big snake thing coming up out yeah. of the desert. And that's one of those bosses where you're like, they could never have done this on Genesis. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It looks like a boss from, like, Space Harrier or something, the way it, like, jumps out at you. Like, it yeah. looks like a boss that they should have, like, if you had a 3D TV set still, you should be able to put on 3D glasses and see the weird dragon thing jump out at you. I love it. And then Mirage Zone Act 2 just gets weird, but in the best ways, where you have the, one of Eggman's, like, underlings is, like, has all this Mirage stuff. 
stuff where yeah. he's creating like different characters and you're going through the level and doing that and then the boss is he keeps turning into like other figures who look like they're from a Lost Knuckles spin-off game. They're they're characters from and this is one of my favorite things about the fucking game is that there's all kinds of um I mean, because I mean, we've obviously been mentioning it. There are tons and tons and tons of like really specific, really intricate bits of fan service all over the place in the game. And one of the things I love about the game is that you have this very large cast of like beloved other Sonic characters. You know, like Amy Rose, which is referenced in the later boss fight. You have like Big the Cat. You have Gamma. Like you have Cream the Rabbit, and all like these characters. You have the characters like Princess Sally from the comic books and stuff. And the characters they chose to feature, like, in, like, at first I thought it was just going to be a background thing, because you see them on wanted posters all throughout Act 2 of Mirage Saloon Zone, but then in the last boss fight, like you're saying, the, the hard-boiled heavy sort of, like, turns into and summons these different um, actual characters that you fight. They are characters, they are the three original characters from the, like... Oft forgotten ni- mid nineties two D or not two D I'm sorry three D fighting game Sonic Fighters. I didn't know that. That's like a kind Holy of crap. almost like Virtual Fighters like kind of fighting game, and it is Bean the Dynamite who is a duck. It is Bark the Polar Bear who's the big polar bear, and it is my favorite Fang the Sniper who I think he's like a fox, but he's the guy with like the hat and, and the gloves and, and the like the the black brown boots. See, I had looked up at first to see, are those the people from Knuckles Echidna or Knuckles, Knuckles Chaotix? No, that's Espio. That's, yeah, that's right. Espio, the Chameleon, uh, Vector the Crocodile, and Charmy the Bee. How could you ever get them mixed up? I'm sorry. I, I forgot my Sonic Heroes training. Yeah, they that. look nothing like, you know, Bart no. the Polar Bear. But it, that's a great reference. I so. mean, they're like some of the most obscure Sonic characters that have ever been in video games. And I just love... That they decided that those would like because it would make way more sense to pull in the Knuckles Chaotix games because or the Knuckles Chaotix characters because yeah you know not many people played Knuckles Chaotix because it was a 32x game but at least they were in Sonic Heroes like they've been referenced more heavily like the Sonic Fighters games are one of the characters are ones that even I can't name off the top of my head I have to fucking look them up and that means they're they have got to be obscure yes yeah it's it's so great though and I guarantee you the Mirage Saloon Zone music will be a theme song on this podcast sooner rather than later absolutely uh, then we get the Oil Ocean Zone yes from and, Sonic 2 and I love this one but I think the Act but, 2 boss yeah. is terrible Yes, the, the, that is the, probably my least favorite boss in the game. Because one or two I don't like it's just it's a really sharp difficulty spike that's mostly based on I think poor game design. Where like in the Act Two boss, you get hit once, you're never going to recover those rings, and that's it. And then it's just there's a lot of moving pieces. You can drown. You have to get up on these platforms. It's really hard. I finally beat it as on my playthrough as Tails. I just decided to get all the Chaos Emeralds early and okay, turn into yeah. Super Tails, and that was the easiest way because I could not get through it. And so you wind up playing Oil Ocean Zone for me at least over and over and over again because if you die you go back to the very beginning of the zone but um up to that point i love this oil ocean zone yeah like i because oil ocean zone is one of my least favorite sonic stages from sonic 2 that is the other one that like if you're playing through sonic the hedgehog 2 if you're going back and like i should play all these old games and you're playing a super sonic don't fucking turn into super sonic on oil ocean zone it's a bad idea you're just gonna fucking drown in oil it's unplayable um, but yeah, like in this one, I think Act One uh, in, in Sonic Mania is one of my least favorite stages because it feels maybe a bit too much like actual old Oil Ocean Zone. But Act Two, where they add in like the, like the submarines and all that crazy stuff, I think Act Two is really good. Well, where they give you the fire shield that just lights all the oil on fire. Yeah, it's that's awesome. Yeah, or like I love that you have the one enemies that have like the two fireballs surrounding them. If you blow them up, then the fire will drop and, and light the oil on fire. It's just like a really cool, interesting, like yeah. really like it just feels like Oil Ocean 
zone done right, which is something I never thought I would ever want in my life. But it's yeah. like, yeah, this is a really good version. I've, I even think normally a game mechanic I wouldn't be that into, but I actually really like the way the fog comes up and you have to go like reset it every now and then. And like, I do too. It, it gives you this like way to sort of like compartmentalize the level because it's kind of complicated in sections. But it is, I think, that last boss fight. I don't think I probably didn't have quite as much trouble with you because I. I want to say I only had to play through Oil Ocean Zone twice. And one time was, like, the first time was utter bullshit. The second time I, I lost to the boss, I probably should have done better. But there is, like, one thing that I think is, like, pretty inexcusable about the boss design is that if you jump up and, like, hit the, the one of, like, the tentacles or whatever and then fall down on the platform right when it is sinking into the oil, you will die immediately. You will fall right through the oil instead of being caught by it. And I died from that, like, three times. And that's one of the main. That's that is the reason I lost the first time and had to go all the way back without having like understood anything about the boss mechanic because I just died immediately. It's like, okay, that's yeah. not like, and it just feels like something that it was not supposed to happen. But it is. It's just like kind of a finicky mechanic in the oil and basing the entire boss fight around that. It feels like a kind of like an, an ill-considered decision. I like the Act One boss fight. It's a, it's a little boss fight. It's very easy, but it's a fun little one. Which one is that one? Again? That's the one where you have he has all the like. Um, those green like pipes that will explode up. Yes, yeah, and they'll shoot those. you into the spikes, and you kind of have to die once to realize that. But other than that, you just have to run around and like dodge him a little bit and fight him. It's very easy, but it's a nice little fight. Yeah, it kind of felt like a boss from Sonic and Knuckles. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Um, but anyway, that's Oil Ocean Zone. Then you get Lava Reef Zone. Yes, that's from Sonic and Knuckles, I think. Yeah. Or maybe Sonic 3. I, was, it's I looked so it up. It's hard to distinguish those two. It's okay. Head. I looked it up at Sonic and Knuckles because I have. That's the game I'm like least familiar with. Yeah. Um, I've played Sonic 3. I don't know if I've ever gotten to the end of all of it. Yeah. But like, you go to the Hidden Palace in Act 2 of, of the Sonic Mania 1, which is from okay. Sonic Knuckles. Oh, nice. But yeah, Lava Reef Zone. I love the music in this one. Yes. I oh, like the Lava Reef Zone Act 1 music from Sonic and Knuckles is one of my favorite Sonic songs, and then their yeah. version of it is very good. Yeah, but this one just... I don't know if I even have a lot to say about it. It's just very good, and it just feels like a super solid Sonic level, and I enjoyed it all the way through. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's yeah. just... It's, it's a really good update of that old one. And it's, it's, again, it's one where they're just, like, complicating some of the concepts and gameplay mechanics from the original in, yeah. the new, in Sonic Mania. It's, it's just really cool. And the last two, the first one, Metallic Madness Zone, is another Sonic CD one. And this one's a, right. a challenge, but a good, like, hearty challenge, I felt. And uh, very yeah, this cool. is the one where you you uh, shrink down right from Sonic. Yes, God, because yes. yeah. this is I'm about to get there again with Tails, and it's all nuts, but I love it. It's yeah. it's very silly, but it's very fun. Yeah. yeah, and then you have a boss fight as Little Sonic, Chibi Sonic. This is yeah. another one that probably took me a couple of tries, but not in the sense of like I hate this game now. More like I'm having a lot of fun with yeah. Because even if I have to play through this again, Metallic Madness Zone, like the other Sonic CD one, there are so many paths through it that if you get sent back to the beginning, you're like, well, I'll just basically make this a different level for myself. Yeah. So and then is this the one where the Act Two boss is the one that's on like the roller coaster, like the the guy who's on the thing that goes on the roller coaster and like with the fire that shoots up? I think so. Yeah, yes, because that's that's my other boss that I didn't like too much, just because okay. like not because it felt hard, but more because it just felt like kind of like a bit messy like I just felt like the, yeah. the window to hit the boss did not feel yeah. clear and precise enough to me and just kind of the boss fight felt like a chore and then we get the Titanic Monarch Zone the yes. end of the game and the last original stage uh, of the four and um, it's I found it really hard until I started to figure out the mechanics around it Okay, because Act 2 is interesting in that you have to go to four separate zones complete them and then go fight the boss right and yeah. the biggest challenge in all of that is if you're not sure how it's all going i mean there's some hard stuff in there but also you can actually hit the time limit on this one pretty easily mm -hmm. and that killed me a couple of times um 
it's also like I I think Titanic Monarch Zone in a couple areas is also a little too visually confusing for its own good. Like I wish the four zones in Act Two were a little better distinguished visually. But once I got into the the challenge of it and like the flow of it and figured out the mechanics, I enjoyed this one a lot. Um, it is a challenge, and this is one point in the game where I was, and I'll talk about this a little bit later. I wish there was some option for like more lives or something, just so that every time you lost to the boss, it wasn't go all the way back, or like lost three lives to the boss, it wasn't do everything again because it can be hard to get into a flow with that. But um, I mean, it's true to the Genesis thing, and overall, I think this is a good conclusion to the game. Yeah, it's one of I think the better because I think like generally Sonic the Hedgehog games do not have very good last stages because at a certain point when Sonic gets too hard, it's not that much fun. And honestly, I think it's one of the easier last stages in a Sonic game because oh, okay. I didn't, because uh, I, I didn't die on this. Well, I didn't. I died, but I didn't have to like go back to the beginning of the stage. So yeah, like it took I think me like two hours. Yeah, for me, it, it was like. Have you, have you like like played the other ones to completion? The old Sonic games because some of the last stages. Oh, of Sonic I know. Yeah. games are fucking brutally difficult. It's been forever. I've definitely done it with Sonic One. I've done it with Sonic One like twice. I've done it with Sonic Two. I don't think I've ever gotten to the end of Three and Knuckles. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the like it just like this one felt like it is definitely it is a long stage, um, particularly Act Two, but it it feels less like bullshit to me than most yeah. last Sonic stages that are just like, God, there's way too much. There's too many enemies. There's too many spikes. There's too many, like, insta-death traps, like, all packed together. This felt like a more fair sort of, like, escalation of the kinds of, like, mechanics and lessons you've learned through yeah. the game. Overall, I would agree. It is, I think there's a certain gauntlet aspect to it where, you know, you've played a lot of Sonic and you yeah. know it better than I do. I think the average gamer might have more trouble with this area, too. But it's it's still good. It is... You know, for for better and for worse, as I said before, this game is very true to some of its origins, and that means that there is going to be a difficulty spike near the end. And this one I found fairly brutal, and again, because the saving system is not forgiving at all in that way, it's... I mean, it does save, but... It's, it's, it is way more forgiving than, like, Sonic 1. Come sure, on, man. Sure, you don't yeah. have to play the whole but game no, through. Like, no, let's not be crazy. But no one's going to release a game like that anymore, so... Yeah. I mean, they give it to you as an option. Like, you know, one of the thoughts I had was, I don't need a version of this game that, like changes the level design or anything, but you've got a no-save option, and then you've got the main, like, three lives thing. Right. I wouldn't have minded for my first playthrough, and I'm pretty okay with it now, if there was, like, start with six lives option, just, like, an easy mode or something, just because I think... And I'm, I'm surely not the only person who thought this, that there is something pretty unforgiving about sometimes getting sent back and having to do things over and over again. Sure. Especially because three lives is pretty small, and even, like, a lot of throwbacks these days don't go quite to that low a level of lives. Yeah, like, I, I think there wouldn't be no harm in... Because, I mean, yeah. like, plenty of games from that era, like Sonic the Hedgehog didn't, but lots of games had, like, you know, put in a cheat or just go and do the options menu and say, like three lives like let's make it nine lives or whatever i think it would have been fine to have an option but i do think it is a really valuable part of those games that like because part of the design philosophy of sonic the hedgehog is that there are so many ways to play through a level i think it is like a legitimate part of the game design that you are kind of meant to play through the levels over and over and over again sure and that's why getting sent back to the beginning means you have to like reapproach the level and like use the knowledge you had the first time through to either like refine the, your first run through or explore the other paths that are available to find one that maybe is easier for you. And I agree completely. And that's why it frustrated me a little, but it's not a game killer for me at all. And why my suggestion was, you know, maybe more lives, not... I wouldn't change anything about the level design or yeah. or have it checkpoint you at the boss, which, um, you know, I don't think it needs to do or something like that. But no, I think it... Yeah. Yeah, because there's something kind of refreshing about playing Sonic Mania and reminding me, like, right... The life mechanic in video games, like, used to actually have a, like, legitimate, like, mechanical sure, purpose yeah. in a way that, like, 
you know, most modern video games have no need for it. So, like, when you have, like, you know, New Super Mario Brothers or something where they still have lives in it, you're like, what the fuck are these even doing? Like, there's no reason. Or, like, Super Mario 64. Those ones actually... What do these serve? Yeah, the New Super Mario Bros. games actually do. They'll send you... There are save points, and they'll send you back multiple levels. It's basically the Mario World save system. The thing is, in, in New Super Mario Bros., it's just very easy to get one-ups. Right. So, yeah. no, yeah. And, and it is the thing that it's... it's Actually, it can be kind of challenging to get one-ups in Sonic, because you can find them, or you can get 100 rings. But, of course, it can be pretty tough to hold on to your rings, yeah. especially on a first run-through of these levels. But that's why you refine it, and you get yeah. going with it. And if you play the level through once or twice, you can find, like... You know, because I think on Oil Ocean Zone... Because I had to play that one through all the way through, I guess, three times. Like, I had found by my third time through, like, two to three different life boxes that, extra yeah. life boxes that I could knew where they were and could go to in each playthrough. And then, like, and also how to, like, okay, now I know how to, like, I can get a hundred rings in Act 1 and a hundred rings in Act 2 without too much difficulty. Yeah, and that's where... you can bolster your lives. Yep, and that's where I would also get, like, the Chaos Emerald rings and things like right, that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's neat. Um... So yeah, that's Sonic Mania. You haven't seen the true ending, so I won't spoil no, yeah. it. I'll just I say can, I can imagine probably what it is. Yeah, but I did enjoy playing as Super Sonic. It seems it feels a little less finicky than it did in the Genesis okay. games. I assume it works basically the same way. Where if you get fifty rings yep. and you jump, it, it turns you into Super Sonic. That's yeah, great. so it's a little finicky, but it's still cool. Um, it's a nice mechanic. The way they let you kind of farm it at the end is great, and I love the mini the chase the UFO thing yeah, is really a great good. challenge. And I wish there was like once you beat them all, there was an extras menu where you could just like play those again. Yeah, you. Can can, you can put in a code that gets you a stage select menu if you want to look that up. Oh, right. They are in the stage. Because I've looked yeah. at that code. I forgot they were in the stage select menu. Never mind. You do have that. So, yeah. yeah. No, they're really fun and creative and I think a lot, a big improvement on the other Chaos Emerald stages. Yeah. Because the Chaos Emerald stage from Sonic 3 is in this one. Yes, the Blue Spheres. And I am banging my fucking... I'm banging my fucking head against the wall with these stages because I don't... I'll say this. I love this game, and this is ultimately... This is not even talking about the main game, so it's not a huge complaint for me. But I think those stages work a lot better to get seven discrete Chaos Emeralds yeah. than 40 challenge medals, which means that they there are way more variations of them here. They feel randomly generated at some points. They're definitely not. They're not? Like, yeah, because okay. I've done enough of them that like I've seen ones come around again that are okay. definitely the exact same ones. Okay. I, I feel like I haven't yet, and I've done... I did a lot of them last night, but like... I don't. Maybe I'm just uniquely bad at these, but they are so hard and so unforgiving sometimes. Yeah. Like I played for like an hour last night and didn't get a single fucking medal, and I was just farming them on Green Hill Zone and trying to get them. And I don't know. There's just because you hit one red thing and you're done. Yeah. And I don't know. I just because you have to get a lot more of them here than you would have in Sonic Three, right? No, like uh, because they have I think almost all of like like straight remakes of the levels from Sonic Three and Knuckles. No, but you there. have to beat these a lot more times, is what I'm saying. Oh yeah, you have to do more of them. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah, more of them. I, I thought you meant like they are longer than no, they no, were no, originally. no. Okay, because I don't know the challenge of them feels like in Sonic Three because uh, I was replaying the first couple levels of Sonic Three a couple months ago. And I liked it there because it felt like a significant challenge because what you get is one of seven Chaos Emeralds. Yeah. Here you get one medal. Like, I don't think I got a medal successfully at all through my first playthrough. Oh, really? No, I yeah, just... I think I got like 30. Really? I mean, I've played so much Sonic 3 and okay. Knuckles that like... It's I can really... go through like the easier ones. I mean, but there are some of them that are fucking incredibly hard. Yeah, like, like there's like some, some of them I, require why, why so said, much speed. Why I said some felt randomly generated to me was I looked at some of them and I was like... I don't know how like I would just start surrounded by all red and I'm like is this impossible I just assumed it was impossible like there's something wrong with it no yeah I, I mean because those stages get pretty complicated in Sonic and Knuckles and then they like 
keep on going from that. Like, I will say, like, there's definitely, like, too much of them. Like, I, I'm fine with it. Like, I think if you're going to pull any of the special stages from the um, original three Sonic games, the Sonic 3 one is the one you pull. Because it's the Sonic a- 2 one is bullshit, and the Sonic 1 one is incredibly tedious. Like, I like the Blue Sphere stages um, fine. But it's just, like, I think they could have gone with having 20 instead of, like, 40. Because it's just, like, that's how you unlock this whole extras menu that's right there on the main screen... And I don't know, I didn't even understand the mechanic by how you find those until I looked it up. Oh, okay. That you have to have 25 rings and hit a gate. That, I, I did not understand that. Well, I mean, you just have to, because there's two clear conditions. It's either you have to get all the blue spheres, and that's just, you get a No, 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 I'm saying to find the spheres. Oh, oh, yeah, well, I mean, that's like a classic Sonic mechanic. of You have to have a certain number of rings, and then if you get through a checkpoint, okay. it has the spinning stars, and then you jump through them. Like, like the, in Sonic 3, those stages would have been in the giant rings, but in, like, yeah. Sonic 2, that's how okay. you would have done it. Anyway, yeah, so I... In Sonic 3, that's how you got, like, the weird, like, jump up and hit the, like, gumball machine stages. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm ever going to unlock any of the extras. I've gotten, like, seven medals, so I have the, like, extra moves for the no-save mode. Yeah. Which you explained earlier. I did not know that was only for no-save mode. I've yeah, it's kind of hard to find. You have to go onto no-save mode and then press triangle, and that will bring you into a menu where you can pick some of that stuff. Because there's, okay. there's a couple of other ones you unlock. Okay, but yeah, I haven't unlocked anything in the extras menu itself, and I'd like to see some of those. But yeah. I just yeah, I'm I, not... I know what I think. There's one because I think one of them you have to get all forty, and that's the one I have not gotten yet. Yeah. But I have everything else. Boy, I just I've had a lot of trouble with them because I, I feel like I keep getting ridiculously hard ones too when I get them. Like you know uh, where you'll start and again not see any blue ones, and it's try to figure out how to jump over the things and then into the thing. I don't know. I because I do not have a lot of experience with them from right. my childhood, so. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Like, I think my main issue with them is just, like... Because especially it was my first playthrough. At some point, I was like, I'm just not going to go to the stages anymore. Because there's so many checkpoints in this game relative to old Sonic games. That if you... And, and the, the, it used to be it would be 50 rings. And you go through a checkpoint. Yeah. And that's how you get to a bonus stage. And this is 25. And so that's, like... Like, you, if, you have a, if you have rings on you a lot you are running into these stages. Like, you can get, like, seven in one stage if yeah. you have rings on you the whole time. And that's, like, I'm not going to jump... Th- I'm not going to play this stage. So, like, that's, like, three times as much time spent in that mini game than there is just playing through this fucking act of this level. And so eventually I had to stop going to them. Yeah. Which is... There's just too many. But the main game itself yeah. is awesome. And, yeah. and those mini games on their own are fine. It's just like, I think the implementation fine, is not You know, great. and in talking about now, because there's so many, I wish they had other things. Like, maybe the Blue sure. Spheres thing, and then invent another couple of little things to have in there. So it's, you get medals in multiple ways, not the same yeah. thing every time. I would just say, I very much appreciate that they did not put the Sonic the Hedgehog 2 special stages in there I'm at not, all. They're not saying they had to use that. Because I have, like, legitimate nightmares about running through those fucking tunnels trying to pick up rings it's the most yeah. stressful thing because at least with the blue sphere ones like you know if you try if you take too long you'll speed up but you can like turn and you can reconsider what you're doing you're not just on the fucking like railroad track you are in sonic 2 no i'm not so saying many they, hours of my life spent in those fucking stages i'm not saying they should have used sonic 2 frankly i i would have liked if it were something different and a, a little less Tedious, sure. but yeah, I... maybe you should just get good at this Blue Sphere Zones. All right. Well, anyway, maybe that's the answer, John. The main game that is Sonic Mania is outstanding. Oh, absolutely, yeah, it's so great. I mean, we're saying it might be the best Sonic game. That's yeah. a big statement. 
You know, we're not just saying, oh, this is the best one in 10, 15 years. No, this might just be better than all of them because it's got what makes a lot of them great and then some. Yeah. And it's one of the best games of 2017. Absolutely. At $20, this game is a steal. Yeah, because it's even longer than most Sonic games. Because, like, yeah. like, it's like as many or more levels than most Sonic games, and the levels tend to be a bit longer than they used to be. And, you know, you can replay it as three characters who play pretty differently. Yeah. You've got a lot of extras, like it's a feature-rich game. This, they could have sold this for 30 or 40 and I think it would have been fair. I mean, this yeah. is what would have been a full-price game 20 years ago. Yeah. It's outstanding. If you own a system where you can play Sonic Mania, and you probably do, you should play Sonic Mania. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about it is just, like, it, be, it being so good is making a lot of the, the kind of assholes who go around the internet being like, no, nah, the guy, like, Sonic was never good. And it's, like, throwing mud in their faces, like, shut the fuck up. Of course the old Sonic games were good. And now I, I feel like a lot of people are being exposed to why those games were good because Sonic Mania is, you know, more modern, more yeah. accessible. And it's just, like, it's new, so people are more inclined to play it. You hope they make a sequel? Absolutely, yeah. I would. I really want them to make a sequel that's just one hundred percent original stages. That was just, my thought too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would even be interested in then, like this team trying to make like figure out what would three D Sonic be like in a more sure. like rudimentary way. Like I'm not expecting like amazing graphics, but like you know, I, I think there's like a, there's an interesting conversation to be had about like what it like a team that understands the fundamentals of two D Sonic this well. What do what would their version of like the future of Sonic from that point in time be? I think that would be really interesting to see if they wanted to go more far afield of just making another like Genesis style two D Sonic game. Yeah, but I really hope we see more of Sonic Mania in yeah. the future. This is one of the absolute delights of twenty seventeen. Yeah. Maybe they could make Sonic CD two and make a like Sonic CD style Sonic game and see what the fuck that would be nowadays. All right, so Sean, you want to talk some Twin Peaks? How do we talk about it? It's like, I just, it feels impossible to keep talking about this show at some point. This episode was so good, Jonathan. This episode was so good. So this Holy was, shit. This is part 15. There's only three hours to go. Yeah. This one, um, we had another Log Lady quote uh, as the subtitle. There's some fear in letting go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last week, part 14, we agreed was maybe one of the best three of the series so far. Yeah. I think this was even better. This mm-hmm. goes into that top tier with yeah. parts 3, 8, 14, now 15. And I'm having a, I have a suspicion 16, 17, and 18 will be on the same par. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like it, we, are, we are in the final act of this show. Yes, and I just... This was a beautiful, sometimes wrenching episode. And I actually want to start, to some degree, at the end. Okay. Is the last scene is that scene... I'm not going to go in depth, but just remember that last scene is at the Roadhouse. Yeah. Where there's this like really like grungy punk rock band playing and there's this Asian woman sitting at the bar alone seems kind of sad and these two biker dudes just pick her up and take her out of it and put her on the ground and it's really mean and she starts crawling and she's like in this sea of feet and she just screams and breaks out screaming and uh, the critic Matt Zoller cites on Twitter, um, who loves the show and has written a lot about it, just kind of was crowdsourcing, like, what do you make of that scene? And I didn't say anything because my response would not fit into 140 characters. Right, yeah. But I actually want to start there because, to me, this was an episode about overwhelming emotions that cannot be expressed verbally. Yeah. And every scene is a different um, variation on that idea of feelings and senses that go beyond the verbal. And so this is, I think, maybe the most visually powerful episode of Twin Peaks so far. To me, it's got some absolute stunners of visual moments. 
and it's got a lot of dialogue that does not quite make sense because characters are trying to say something. And it's got these, particularly in the opening scene with Ed and Norma, yeah. this synergy of music and visuals that feels almost uh, like nothing Lynch has done before quite. Um, and so ending with that moment, and it's a dark version of it at the very end of this episode, but that moment of this just primal scream, that's the episode to me. Yeah. You know? And this is another episode that, with the possible exception of the Audrey scene, which I need to see where that's going because at this point, I don't want to say I'm frustrated with it, I just don't know if it fits with the other stuff going on. Hmm. This episode is another one that feels so thematically tight to me. No, yes, absolutely. Because it also just has like that progression of starting from this place of like pure happiness and warmth and then just like descending into yeah. darkness and, and sadness and, and like this like really negative dark place and then ending in this just because it also like a big part of that scene was you know it's it been heavily thematized throughout the whole show of you know misogynistic violence and violence against women and like oppression and, and just like in that sense of powerlessness and, and, and victimhood at, at modern society and at like the violence committed in society and just having her because like, it's not even they don't punch her they don't like hurt her in any way they just literally pick her up put her on the ground and just sit down at the bar and don't even notice her anymore. Nobody notices her. Like she she's was a com- backpack on the seat. Yeah. She's just becomes completely invisible. It's like she's not even there and she has no recourse to that other than to scream and even in screaming the scream is drowned out by the band and nobody takes notice. Nobody acknowledges that she's there at all. And it is that sense of you know that like I mean it's like a, a recurring theme in in fiction and in, in literature and in, in film and everything from like the twentieth basically the beginning of the twentieth century on of like the effects of modernity the effects of living in these highly populated areas and this effect of like being lost in the sea of humanity where you are no longer feel like you are acknowledged in any way by a society or a culture and are just hidden away and I feel like that is what a lot of the characters in this episode deal with and it is crystallized in that moment of just like pure angst and, 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 and pure rage against the machine that is utterly futile because for the most part none of the roadhouse scenes whether they're in the middle of the episode like in part eight where we had the nine inch nails performance or as the coda to the episode which they usually are they're never like a literal ending to the episode they're never yeah. like your characters go there and some big plot thing happens that's really has not happened at the roadhouse yet and it probably won't i think that's a it's a different space in this version of the show so what it always is is it's some kind of like poetic sort of ending where it's the ending that kind of does some sort of thematic summation of what the episode was about and i think this is actually one of the best ones yeah in that sense of like it really solidifies what was going on in this hour of television yeah. and like the music that they choose to play or david lynch yeah. chooses to sort of showcase at the end of each episode tends to match the tone and a lot of times the lyrics reflect things about the themes of that episode and this yeah. one is, it's definitely true here as well yeah so let's go back to the beginning of the episode we start with um so this whole opening scene is the whole thing with Nadine and Norma and Ed. And the whole progression of it is wonderful. Because we begin in the foothills with the trees and we pan up to show the mountains. And then we have Nadine walking down the road with her gold shovel in tow. Yeah. You can almost imagine like Disney music playing uh-huh. in the background as she walks. Which is wonderful. There's hi this, ho, hi, hi ho. ho. Off to shovel shit we go. <laughs> I can't wait for David Lynch's Snow White. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, you know, Disney's doing all these weird live action remakes. Get Lynch to do one. Maybe that's going to be the fallout of Twin yeah. Peaks being a success. 
is he'll get to do a Snow White movie. I mean, he's Disney. made a Disney movie before. He's gotten it in. That's true. Uh, the straight story, for those who don't know. I love how this is shot, where there's these fade cuts as she's, as she's walking, which sort of show us the passage of time. She finally gets to Big Ed's gas farm. And uh, there's this whole thing where Ed is surprised that she waddled this way here. He has no idea what's going on. And there's this whole conversation where she just unburdens him and unburdens herself and says, You're free. I was jealous. I didn't want you to have the love you want. I do love you, but that means I need to let you go, basically. And uh, she, as she says, she's I'm shoveling myself out of the shit. Yeah. And I like that Ed seems to know about the whole Dr. App thing. Uh-huh. But... Not, like, much about it, so the whole thing still confuses him. I mean, is... I just love his whole response to this, because I love, like, his first reaction is just to be like, now, Nadine, yes. you're going to wake up tomorrow, and you're going to regret saying any of this. And, I like, I love that, because it's so, you so get the sense that Big Ed is this rock in this town. Like, he has not changed at all. Like, he still has this, like, unfortunate need to, like, care for her, uh, Nadine in this way that's, like, kind of creates a toxic relationship not because either of them are mean or wanted to be toxic but it's like he's almost he's too caring for his own good and boy does it feel like people i know in my family and elsewhere like older couples in the midwest who have that kind of bond yeah it feels very I, i know nadine is a very heightened character it still feels very true to me yeah, and it's just in that, like, her having to... Because I think also, like, the audience is supposed to be skeptical of what Nadine is saying because yeah. it's Nadine. Like, she is the most, like, insane mercurial character in the history of Twin Peaks. I mean, this is the character that in season two spent the entirety of season two, like, mind-fucked back into the state of being a high school girl and, like, dates the fucking football player and stuff. You know, Mike. So we're supposed to be skeptical of her, but then as she keeps on saying it... I, I think, like, I really do believe what Dane's Dean's saying. I yes. think, like, she really, and she really believes in it, too. And obviously she does enough to convince Ed that he goes to the Double R Diner with the biggest, again, I feel like I made the comparison um, a couple of episodes ago to a Sam Raimi Spider-Man that it would have been a joke. This was, like, you could have just cut in the raindrops keep falling on my head scene <laughs> from Spider-Man 2 in the in between the Nadine stuff and him arriving at the Double R Diner, and you wouldn't even notice. It's like, it's, it's Tobey Maguire and you don't even notice because it's so in keeping with him walking in there with this giant smile and waving in this really exaggerated fashion. It's and be- great. And before we get to that scene where he goes to the Double R Diner... I just want to focus on this scene one minute longer. Because okay. there's that moment where Nadine hugs him. And it's like, but in that hug, she's letting him go. And he chokes up just a little bit. Those two actors in that scene, absolutely amazing. And yeah. again, as you said, Nadine was not particularly well used in the majority of original Twin Peaks. Even though I think she was a very interesting character in season one. Yeah. And boy, has David Lynch given these characters the continuation they deserved. Yeah. And the acting done by these performers is out of this world. And it also occurred to me, like, as I realized where this scene was going, let's trace this. Uh-huh. Where the golden shovel led us on New Twin Peaks. Because the, right. yeah. the first golden shovel scene was the first scene set in the town of Twin Peaks in The Return, in episode yeah. one. After we had some of the weird stuff going on. We had Dr. Jacoby coming out wearing his weird sunglasses and he gets a shipment of shovels. And he starts spray painting them gold. That's the first thing we saw in New Twin Peaks. And at the time, you and I were like, is that going to go anywhere? And you had the joke that, oh, I hope he's reselling them with yeah. gold. And then she we was. Got, which he was. But then there's the Dr. App thing. And we got that and we're like, okay, that was super funny. That's probably it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's continued and it's continued. And then it became something very real for Norma where it led us to see her life and the Run Silent Run Drape store and her relationship with Jacoby, which was interesting. Yeah. And now all of that has led us here. 
this thing that seemed like a total goof and then seemed like maybe a joke or a piece of social satire with Jacoby, it has now turned into one of the most real emotional through lines of this series. I need to stress again, David Lynch does not have an insincere bone in his body. Oh yes, absolutely. He is the most earnest man on this planet. He does not prank his audience. It's easy to say like, oh, he's lol, he's trolling us. No, he's never trolled his audience. Yeah. He, all of this comes from a deeply sincere place, whether we understand it or not. And I feel like the golden shovel stuff will be like my evidence number one from here on out. Because like that was so easy to look at and say, this has to be some kind of troll or prank, right? It's yeah. like, no, he, he doesn't do that. And he believes in this. Because this is also like, as you say, it's got that kind of raindrops keep falling on my head quality to the scene. But it's not a spoof. It's not a farce. No, yeah. It's so earnest, even if it's a little silly, because love is a little silly, and David Lynch knows that. But that whole progression that over now 15 hours of story, Dr. Jacoby getting a mysterious shovel shipment led us all the way here. Yeah. How amazing is that? I mean, it is definitely something like if you've been watching this show and have been assuming that David Lynch had no idea what the bigger picture was, it was stringing people along, this is definitely evidence against that fact. Because it does feel like as bizarre and circuitous as it was, it feels real. Like, it, it, is, it is legitimate, like, powerful storytelling because... Like, all those scenes have mattered in those little moments where we check in with the Doctor and we, we check in with Nadine and we, we follow this along, you know, and we got Big Ed for the first time a couple of episodes ago and, like, checking in with his life. Like, all of those things have led to this spot where it does feel like this, like, weirdly, surprisingly organic turn yeah. that Nadine has, like, as, as strange of a path it is and as strange as, like, the medicine was for her, she has found a way to kind of turn her life around in a weird way and release Ed, which is, like, one of the longest-running, like, subplots in the history of Twin Peaks that goes all the way back to the, basically the beginning. If that was their plot, was that Ed and Norma are in love, that Ed is trapped in this, this um, relationship with this marriage with Nadine, who is crazy. And that goes to the, back to the very beginning of Twin Peaks, and there is this legitimate build-up from there to this moment. Yes. And again, like there aren't... At this point in the return, I think we can pretty confidently say there really have not been any just random scenes. Everything yeah. is over 15 hours, which is a long time for a TV show now. Everything has had a purpose and a place and has had a payoff later on. And that's a really incredible thing. I think as a piece of structural TV storytelling, yeah. Twin Peaks The Return is a monument, a monumental achievement. This aired the same night as Game of Thrones, uh, the, the episode episode six of this season, which was called Beyond the Wall. It's the big yeah. one that we got this season, and it was maybe one of the worst episodes of Game yeah. of Thrones ever. Because, I saw a lot of mess about that episode on Twitter. Oh, because structurally, it fell so hard and flat on its face and revealed a lot of structural problems Game of Thrones has had this season. And to watch that and then to watch Twin Peaks and be like, this is master storytelling. And it like yeah. threw into sharper relief... What my issue was with the zombie episode going on in Game of Thrones. It was a very different thing. But it is a thing to think about. So, yeah, we're getting into like the bigger picture here. But, you know, this episode really solidified for me that, okay, we only have three hours left. And there's a lot to wrap up. But I have, like, 99.9% .9 confidence they can do it. Yeah, absolutely. But obviously. So, but the second half of this scene is we fade to the double R diner. Music on the jukebox as Ed pulls up. Uh, the lyrics, I've been loving you too long to stop now. Uh -huh. Great song choice. And he just walks up to Norma with confidence and tells her what happens. And then we're... I'm a, little, a free man. I'm a free man. 
But then we're a little sad because Walter, the agent, is here. And we're like, oh, no. So it's like a classic rom-com scene, yeah. except Ed might be too late. And so Shelly takes Ed's order. He's, he asks for a cup of coffee. And a cyanide pill. Yep. The way he delivers it, it's a very cliche line, and it feels like a very old school... Like, it feels like a line that would be from a movie from, like, the 50s or something. But he delivers it so note-perfect. Yep. In a way that I was actually kind of taken aback by how, how well that line worked. Yep. I would not have thought, looking at a script, that that line would have worked. But this... This scene has a happy ending because Norma has something to tell Walter. I'm exercising my option for you to buy me out for family reasons. And uh, she says she has a wonderful family and wants to take care of them and spend more time at home. And as she says this, the music which had gone down swells fully. And Ed is closing his eyes and breathing in and out. And the camera zooms in on him. And then Norma puts her hand on Ed. Her hand comes in on the frame onto his shoulder. Yep. And uh, he smiles just a tad, like Im- almost imperceptibly, and uh, he whispers, marry me. And they just kiss, and Shelley looks on, smiling, as we all are. Yeah. Imagine Amick had a great tweet where she said, me in this shot is everyone watching that scene. Cause that's, and she's right, Shelley is the audience in that moment. And she says, uh, Norma says, of course I will. And then we just cut to these poetic, like Ozu-esque images, like Yasujiro Ozu, of clouds floating in the yeah. sky to kind of represent this happy moment. What a scene. It's so amazing. It's just, it's one of the, like, I'm always really fascinated by how um, they choose to open these episodes because a lot of times there are scenes like this one you would in no way expect would be at the beginning of an episode. Like, this is in a more, like, traditionally structured TV show, this would be the kicker at the end of an episode. At the end of a season. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, if it was Twin Peaks 1, it would be, like, that would be, like, the end of an episode. It was, like, this big moment of, like, Oh, they're they're actually together. Like this subplot is, you know, maybe not completely resolved, but is like in this like last stage. Like they are actually hooking up. Like that's the climax of that subplot. And here it's the first pair of scenes at the very beginning of this episode. That also was not necessarily like set up at the end of the last episode or no. anything like that, because this but, show is not really doing that. But as we said, it has been set up so precisely over the course of fifteen hours yeah. to get us here. Like, because there's also the Norma side of it where. We, had, we saw a little bit of Norma every time we went to the double R and then kind of more and more until we kind of got to, we were being prepared for what headspace is she in going into this scene. I mean, I have very rarely seen TV storytelling seeded this well over yeah. the course of this many hours. It's beautiful. And then one of the other like critical points about something like that is that it's not just that it was seeded, but that when it is executed, it is executed in such a like superb and kind of masterful fashion that if this was the first episode you saw you would completely understand the entire dynamic of this this scene like these two scenes the relationships involved and it obviously would not have the same amount of impact but you could understand those scenes on their own separated from everything else like they 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 exist on their own and tell their own little story that fits in with the larger story but that is like a really key thing that i think a lot of tv shows forget to do is that making your scenes in your like subplots and like those kinds of you know standout sequences stand out on their own is not just for like you know viewers who haven't been around for the entire season to be able to understand like and, and catch up and get in on the action but it makes those scenes clear and more evocative and more effective if they can work on their own as small stories absolutely it's just good filmmaking yeah and lynch is just warming up in this oh episode. yeah because holy crap because from those beautiful shots of the clouds harsh sudden cut to electrical sounds and a dark jittering black and white image of electrical poles on the road and then this pov in a car driving down the highway in the dark yeah our dark coupe 
yep. shot of yeah the, the front from the front like the hood of the car with the the lights which is yeah. like if there is one sequence of shots and he's gone to it several times now that like defines a huge part of the tone to Twin Peaks the return to me it is this shot yeah. of just this car driving through the the woods with the headlights illuminating the the dark road as it turns and we proceed to one of the mind fuckiest mind fucks of Lynch's career oh yeah uh, because Dark Coop is basically coming back into the Northwest Passage I don't know if he's in Twin Peaks yet but he's clearly in the Northwest um, and he pulls over to a gas station where one of the dirty bearded men walks out. It is a convenience store, and technically. It's the convenience yes. store from episode 8. And not just that, the piece of music that starts playing here as the captions, as I told you, you should watch the captions, tell us very helpfully is the Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, yeah. which played during the atomic bomb scene in episode 8. Yeah. So it's playing that piece of music again. Um, very meaningfully. So we're to that place that was like in all the jittery shots in episode 8. Yeah, with all the people like walking by super yeah. fast because it was, you know, it was kind yeah. of... So we are there now. Yeah. And the dark man leads Cooper up the steps. There's this static cracking as they disappear slowly. And the way I described it in my notes is it looked like an electrical current like dying out. Because it's not just they flash disappear. Yeah. It's like they start to disappear and then they come back in and they disappear and then finally they're just gone. Yeah. And I love that they like... He walks up that staircase... And the, like to where like the staircase goes up and there's like a turn with the guardrail, but there's no door there. Yeah. It's just a blank wall. Yep. And then we uh, have atmospheric wind and harsh strings as we zoom into like black and white woods, like we're moving through them in like a disembodied POV shot. Yeah. And suddenly, Dark Cooper is in a room where a dirty man with a black face and like blood dripping down, like black as in like. It's painted black yeah. or something. It's very weird. Like, not, not black face, but, you know, it's right, hard yes, to describe. Yeah. It's like a mask, almost. Um, and he's got, like, blood dripping down his face. He's sitting there. Dark Coop says he's looking for Philip Jeffries. And the man pulls a crank. And then, like, electrical sounds, like, start happening. And then we have footage of the masked midget dude from Firewalk with me. Yeah, with, like, the weird, like, the, like the yeah. giant nose, white, like, plaster mask. And I think it's footage from the deleted scenes. I... I think so. I'm not sure. Because this whole place is clearly supposed to be the set from the deleted scenes of Firewalk With Me that's like the place above the gas station. Yeah. That's like where... The, uh, he lives people. in a convenience yeah. store. Like the, one yeah. of the first things that Mike tells us about, about uh, Bob. Yes. So anyway, um, another man walks in as the seated man bangs a stick on the ground and then suddenly... Well, that's nothing I'm suddenly here, but like slowly Cooper is now led into darkness. The, the first dirty bearded man leads him down this long, dark, empty hallway. The only light is this lit room at the end. And as he walks, we get one of the great images of David Lynch's career. And it's this superimposition of as he's moving, we have the trees from before. And they are moving, like the camera is moving through, through those trees at the same pace as Evil Cooper and the Dark Man walk through the hallway. And it's like this equal superimposition, and it is utterly haunting. And it's creating this sense that like, and we get it more later in the sequence that Lynch is showing us two worlds existing in tandem in the same place in space-time. And they're like yeah. merging with each other. And it's a beautiful haunting image. Yeah. I mean, it made me think of it. Something I think we talked about last week or maybe was... The, yeah, I think it was the episode last week where, where the, uh, you know, the FBI... Or not the FBI, the sheriff and everyone go into the woods and talked about how there's this great you know, tradition in a lot of 19th century American literature... You know, like think if you know, go back to high school and think about a Scarlet Letter or something like that. Like a lot of Nathaniel Hawthorne stories use this trope of going into the woods in the wilderness, and because you know that's in America, 
we lived right next to like this large like untamed wooded area as opposed to most of Europe by that time was so fully colonized and, and, and you know if you were in the England or the UK there's no huge woods anywhere and America had this whole frontier that nobody could like that was so mysterious and nobody knew what was there like think also the horror movie from last year or two years ago The Witch uses that trope and like, like that motif really well and last episode of Twin Peaks to their turn use that I think trope to create that sense of ominousness and, and, and th- that omen of, of moving into the forest and moving into this more like spiritual primal place and this is like the darkest version of that and I like how it equates like this run down disgusting abandoned building as being the modern version of that of like these space these unseen hidden spaces that you move into that you don't know and can't perceive what like sort of supernatural or spiritual forces like lurk there that are going to attack you and assault you and for like a Nathaniel Hawthorne story make you question your faith or whatever you know yeah and there's a couple more superimpositions we'll talk about later Um, but I love how Lynch uses it to like illustrate those exact kind of themes you're talking about have you ever seen the the movie from a couple years ago by Jonathan Glazer called Under the Skin it's got Scarlett Uh, Johansson no I haven't yeah it's a great movie and it ends with a big like forest kind of sequence and some superimpositions kind of like this that I love that was one of the associations I was thinking of when watching this but anyway they finally reach that staircase they go up very slowly very deliberately he keeps the camera low like they're moving up high and it reminds me of those shots of the uh, the Palmer house and the original Twin Peaks yes, yeah. of like under the staircase but anyway Cooper finally opens the door and he's now in what looks like an empty lot like a it's, I think it's a motel and it kind of dirt. looks like in episode 8 when the fireman like left that one building and like was walking to another one it kind of looked like that area to me oh yeah I hadn't thought of that yeah. but yeah all these spaces are, are probably very connected spiritually if not yeah. geographically um, but yeah he, he moves with purpose towards this dark door in the corner which is room 8 which um, one of the people in a cell later on will also be in cell number 8 if oh, we want to take note be, of numbers yeah. I mean it's Just, like lost up in this bitch <laughs> Anyway, he knocks, and behind him, a figure in a mask and nightgown saunters up to him. The way this is shot, like the contrast, it looks like a mannequin at first. Like the facial features are very hard to see. I could not make out the gender of this person. Like it's, I think it was supposed to be a woman, but the fighting. face is very masculine. Yeah, it's, like, it's it's really, a, you're like, like you're right. The, the lighting yeah. on it is very unusual. Yeah, so like it's all mysterious. The door is. She says she'll unlock the chihi whatever. Un- says uh, they will unlock the door for Evil Cooper. And uh, does so, and then Cooper enters, and then we have inside there's this light bulb humming erratically, and the fluorescent light up top is flickering, otherwise the room is so dark, Cooper is looking towards the camera, we cut to his POV, and he's looking at just a wall, and then the wall, like, disappears to reveal this Baroque image, as I described it, of a big metallic bell billowing smoke. In a it's dark... almost like in like a, an old like 17th or 18th century like ornate teapot or something. Yes. If you've like, ever seen those kinds of things. Yeah, it looks uh, very much like the images from episode 3 where Good Cooper was. Yeah. Or, as I said, virtually any David Lynch painting. Right. Um, if you are not familiar with David Lynch's painting, I actually think... It's super important, not that important, but it's super helpful to interpreting Twin Peaks The Return because this is by far the most he has ever, with the possible exception of Eraserhead, leaned on his own um, painting sensibilities for his visual style in his work. Because there's a ton, most of how he visualizes like the dark, otherworldly spaces in The Return is in a very painterly aesthetic. 
And it's something I thought of here because we're going to talk about this whole Philip Jeffrey sequence and it's very interesting. Yeah. But visually what's going on there is that if you look closely, this is actually another superimposition where the wall, and you can tell by the radiator, is superimposed over all this, but it's very, it's, a, it's like a 75-25 superimposition, not right. 50-50. And so there's all these dark things going on. There's the smoke. It's got a very painterly aesthetic in terms of composition. And if you've seen Lynch's paintings, I would recommend the film. It's called David Lynch, The Art Life. And uh, Criterion is releasing it in September. It's a new documentary. Um, and it's wonderful. And it's mostly about his paintings. And you get to see a lot of them. And you'll see this persistent theme where he has these very dark otherworldly figures. But it's to me, it's like it's Lynch, Lynch's paintings are like putting on these weird goggles and seeing a darker dimension within our own. And that's how he's visualizing what we call the red room dimension in this. Right. Yeah. And it's something I love that it's like, and they even, they make it pretty explicit here through the visuals with all these superimpositions that the actual space Cooper is in is like the woods of Twin Peaks. But yeah. all of this is also there. And I think it's really interesting how these episodes and the visuals are really in conversation with David Lynch's work as a painter. Um, and that's something he has not done a ton of before. So it's a really interesting artistic evolution for him. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that before we get into the scene. Because this is basically another sequence where Lynch has had to be very creative because he doesn't have the actor. Yeah, I mean, this is a question we've been asking for a long time. Because the name Philip Jeffries, which is the David Bowie character, the FBI agent from Fire Walk With Me, who yeah. is in the most insane scene in that movie, that all of a sudden that scene makes perfect sense now. Which is like... I would have never thought that that would be one of the things I would say coming out of Twin Peaks The Return is that somehow that sequence of Fire Walk With Me makes perfect sense to me. Um, but yeah, obviously David Bowie passed away and so we've been getting all these references to Philip Jeffries and we've been speculating, well, like, what is he going to do with it? I don't think anybody would have ever come to the conclusion that Philip Jeffries would have been a giant ornate teapot belching smoke. I think David Bowie would have approved. I've, I think so as well. Like, it, yeah, it is... I mean, it looks like an image that could have been, like, on an album cover in the 70s. Oh, absolutely! Thinking of how much David Bowie's, particularly, like, 70s and then, like, the Berlin period is so much about, like, the mutability of the body. Yeah. And, like, how souls are transferred and things like that. He would have loved this. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we knew they had written a scene for David Bowie. And so it was the question of how are they going to do the Philip Jeffries scene? Um, because they were not able to get him to film a scene before he died. And this is how we did it. So there's a different actor doing the voice, but it's an impression of the weird southern accent Bowie yeah. did. And so it's this whole thing where, um, oh, it's you, Jeffries. Thank God. Why did you send Ray to kill me? What? I called Ray. So you did send him. Did you call me five days ago? I don't have your number. So it was someone else who called me? We used to talk. Yes, we did. <laughs> It's so weird. It's like, just like it's again. It's just the the dialogue that Dark Cooper has in so many of these scenes is just inscrutable. And yet, in the moment, it feels like somehow it is making sense to you. And we do get this cut here to the Jeffrey scene in Fire Walk with Me, now rendered in black and white, where he has that one weird line: "I'm not going to talk about Judy." Yeah, which was something that I thought like so had to not have been in the original because I didn't specifically remember that line. I'm like. There's no way that I like we just went on YouTube and it's like yeah no he totally just says that randomly in the middle of that fucking scene it's just like buried in there he straight up says that line I thought they had like overdubbed the voice or something yeah. to like put that line in it's like nope that's yep that, they're legitimately pulling all that from that sequence from that movie I totally get it I I, I did remember that line because it's a particularly weird one but I yeah it seems way out of left field yeah but yeah so. Uh, Cooper tells him that about this scene that in 1989 you showed up at FBI headquarters and said you'd met Judy 
And then there's this ominous humming and the device clanks and Jeffrey's bot says, so you are Cooper. And then we switch to a close-up on Evil Coop because it's a sort of a weird shot, reverse shot to this point. And Coop says, Philip, why didn't you want to talk about Judy? Who is Judy? Does Judy want something from me? Why don't you ask Judy yourself? Let me write it down for you. And then numbers just come out of the smoke. Like, they don't, they are the smoke. They like billow. Yeah. And Cooper, like, furiously takes out a notepad and writes it all down and keeps asking, Who is Judy? He says, You've already met Judy. What do you mean I've met Judy? And then, like, the scene ends with him yelling, Who is Judy? Who is Judy? And that's, that's where Jeffrey's smoke robot fades away. Yeah. So that was the scene. Yeah. And it's like, So is Judy going to be an f- important figure going forward? I guess, like, the only two things I can think of is, one, like, it was the weird woman that unlocked the door for him, like, five minutes before that scene was, like, one thought that occurred to me when uh, Jeffrey said the line, you've already met Judy, is like, well, he did just meet this lady for the first time. Or maybe it's the crazy, you know, like, monkey lady with the eye problem in the jail cell. Boy, that's that's Judy. Well, and this is another interesting scene, because this is one moment where we've been talking so much about... The, the dual Coopers, that there are two yeah. Coopers now. But Philip Jeffries here, or Jeffries bot, just says, you are Cooper. Yeah, because he remembers being in the FBI office when he wouldn't have yeah. been Evil Cooper yet. Which also in that scene, when they, they re-showed that scene from the Netflix episode or whatever, and it's the part where Jeffries says, like, who is that there? That's like... You know, implying that like he somehow knows that Cooper is going to switch. We took that as being time-space fuckery... Maybe it wasn't time space fuckery. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe there's something even more going on. It's true, and it's just it's this really weird moment where you have to because we have not gotten deep into the metaphysics of like what this evil Cooper is. Yeah. Like, how deep is the actual split between these bodies and souls? Like, does he have all of Asian Dale Cooper's memories and thoughts and all that? I mean, in there? one thought I had, um, I don't know if I, we talked about it on the podcast, but it was uh, that episode where they talk about the Blue Rose cases, and it's like the other doppelganger case yeah. where one of the women dies and the other one disappears, and the woman who's shot says, I'm like the Blue Rose is the fake one. And I think you're supposed to just assume that the fake one is the evil one. But what if that's not how it works? Like, what if evil Coop is literally in Cooper's body and Cooper is the one that is in a fake body? Like, Cooper is the one that is a simulacrum and evil Cooper is the real Cooper. Maybe yeah. not in soul, but in body. I totally think that's a possibility that I guess I hadn't thought about much yet. But it is like this whole idea of duality here. Because, yeah, this is the Cooper who's been in the world. The other, the Dougie Cooper we know came out of an electrical socket and maybe has gone back into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Given a later scene, jumping ahead a little bit. So yeah, I, again, I don't love like trying to speculate forward on this, but it is, but it, there's it, so much to break yeah, down. This definitely is one of the more enticing scenes in terms of giving you the little hints. And then also, you know, is a healthy dose of the random nonsense numbers. That's a theme in Twin Peaks Return that I love. Because <laughs> then we get uh, in the captions, I love it says static sputtering intensely. And then images of the convenience store, like episode eight, like fluttering. And then it's Cooper is just in a payphone out front on a really, st- um, like a turned Dutch angle, which Lynch yeah. almost never uses those, so it's really fascinating. And then we like another scene kind of starts right here where Richard, the yeah, evil kid, Dick Horn, Dick Horn, is there holding a gun on Evil Cooper. Yeah, it is a great. It's a very classic kind of like gang or like crime movie shot of like the yeah. gun just like pops up in the middle of the frame and kind of shocks you. Yes, 
And uh, so Richard, uh, or Dick as you say, thinks Cooper is FBI because he has a picture that his mom had. And this is where we get the explicit reference. Uh, Cooper asks, who's your mom? And he says, Audrey Horn, and your name's Cooper. And then Cooper spits and then like punches the shit out of Richard and gets the gun out of his hand and says, don't ever threaten me again. Get in the truck. We'll talk on the way. Kicks him on the ground a couple of times for good yep. reason. Which was but cathartic. They're going to go together now. Presumably father and son. Uh, yeah. Which I think we're going to learn more of. And uh, Richard gets in the car. And uh, Cooper sends a text to an unknown person. Maybe Diane. Maybe yeah, probably not. Diane was my guess. Yeah, and it says... Las Vegas. Question mark. Yeah. Yeah. So they get in the car and drive off. But Lynch holds on the front of the store. And zooms slowly in as the car leaves. And then we cut out. And inside, light and smoke come in and out of the, of, the, of the convenience store. And smoke starts billowing. There's this electric crackling coming from inside. The smoke rises like this giant cloud as the lights get fiercer and fiercer. And then another superimposition. It's disappearing into the trees. Like, uh, like I was saying earlier, these two pieces of reality that are like overlapping from separate dimensions. And one reasserts itself as the other plane falls away. And I love that scene. Yeah. Boy, what a what a visual statement. Because again, it's very weird, but this is Lynch at such a height of his filmmaking powers. I I never look at images in Twin Peaks: The Return and feel just baffled by them. I really do get something out of them all the yeah. time. And this is one of those where it really does his whole perce- like conception of these two dimensions really does feel like there's a dark world and it exists within our light world and they share a plane, but they are separated by dimensions or something like that. And he says that all to us visually. Yeah, and I love it, and it's it's such a great way to both further talk about the red room and all that stuff, and also not um, and complicate it more. Yeah, instead of demystifying it, right. it actually mystifies it even further. Yes, it both demystifies and like clarifies in weird yeah. ways. But anyway, we fade to black here, uh, and then I have one note that just says "Holy fuck!" Yeah, because <laughs> That's a good note. yeah, and then we uh, whoosh over the Twin Peaks trees. There's wind, yeah, and we go above them. From he loves these shots in the return of that very high vantage. Must be a helicopter shot of the camera, and it moves down to this little waterfall, and then uh, fades to a pan sideways through the forest. These very ominous images, very reminiscent of the scenes from uh, last week's episode. Yeah, but now we're not with. Any of the people we, uh, or any of those people from the sheriff's department, were with um, Becky's husband, Stephen. Yeah. That dirty, weird kid. For yeah. another very inexplicable sequence. And there's a ton of dialogue here. I won't get into all of it, although I think there's some interesting writing where he is with a woman. I think it's the woman he was with a few episodes ago when it Becky yeah, yeah. tried to shoot him. And um, they're talking about something that he did or had done or is thinking of doing. I don't think it's... Some people have taken the scene to be like, oh, he must have killed Becky. Which is what I thought at first, because I think, like, the beginning of the scene feels like it's supposed to imply that. Because also, like, the shot is so tight on them, and they're kind of looking, like, a bit off the camera in a way that, like, makes you... I kept on thinking that, like, the camera was going to pull out and it would reveal that there was a body there. But the fact that it doesn't do that, and, like, the dialogue gets more and more sort of mercurial and and strange, because he's high out of his fucking mind makes me think like it is hard to try to like derive any sort of concrete physical thing that happened that they're referring to because there might be no thing that happened at all it might just be you know he he you know shot up one too many times or something and then that's just it yeah like uh i i totally think like that could be a the right conclusion that becky is dead off screen somewhere yeah i just i wouldn't be that sure based on what happens here because the dialogue here specifically is 
Uh, he's going. He's like rubbing his leg and clutching a gun and saying why over and over. Or she says why, and he says there is no why. I did do it. No, no, she did it. She did it. I can't. No, I did it. No, no, Stephen, Stephen, stop it. You didn't do anything. You were fucking stoned. What the fuck did she give you? Like that's kind of the evidence for it, and it's so all over the map. Yeah. But it's. I. Ha- I felt like I had to write down a lot of this dialogue because it's so weird. There's this. He. She's trying to get him to give up the gun, and he starts going on this monologue where he says, "Look at me. I'm a high school graduate." And he pulls something out of his pocket, like he pulls out a clip for the pistol and loads it, and says, "It's going to end it." And uh, he says, "Where will I be?" He's looking up at this big tree, which gets blurry, and he starts speaking nonsense. He says, "Where will I be? Will I be with the rhinoceros, the lightning in the bottle, please, or will I be completely like like the turquoise? I feel something. Fuck or dot 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 fuck." <laughs> It's like this weird stoner beat suicide poetry <laughs> yeah. that we get in this sequence. He also says maybe the most romantic line ever, which is, I really enjoyed fucking you <laughs> to the girl, which is like a really good line. There's something about that uh, here's line. The, I have it. It's yeah. do whatever you want. I liked fucking you. Did I tell you? I liked it a lot. She starts sobbing. Just so you know that I like your cunt. Like sometimes it's so amazing you're making me cry. Stop it, cunt. That's an amazing... Yeah, it's just an insane... It, it feels like you said... It almost feels like legitimately like Allen Ginsberg-esque like beat poetry from the 50s. Yes. But in a very weird setting. Yes, in a, in a very displaced setting. <laughs> Most of these are these very tight shots. We do, in the middle of all this, get a long shot of the two against the tree, totally dwarfed by the forest. Like one of those shots I'd love to see on the big screen or something, because yeah. it's beautiful and haunting. Uh, and then finally, the man that we see, we see a man earlier in the scene walking his dog, like not someone we've seen before, and he comes up upon them and they freak out. Uh, Steven tries to hide the gun, she runs to the other side of the tree, doesn't seem like the guy does anything in the moment. Um, but then we rest on the woman, and she's on the other side of the tree, and it's a tight close-up on her, and we hear the gun cock, and then we hear the gun fire. She starts to freak out, but tries to calm herself, and then we get these POV shots of her looking up at the forest around her, the shots swing and dance through the foliage and the light, and I say POV shots of her, it, it could be an also a representation of like Stephen's soul leaving his body sure, if we assume yeah. he's dead. I mean, there's a lot of ways to read that. Those yeah. disembodied POVs Lynch likes in this. Um, and this is where I made the note. Simply remarkable filmmaking. Because something we have not gotten across yet, a little bit maybe with that last part. The cinematography and like the cutting and everything in this scene is so intense and so hauntingly beautiful. It's a wild scene. Yeah, and there's some, one of the dynamics I really love about the scene is the playing with, also like kind of going back to that, like the, the mystification of the woods and the mythologizing almost of like the woods uh, in, in Twin Peaks and, and having them be there and having this like strange isolated moment that feels like it exists outside of time and space. You know, it's so detached from the rest of reality and, and how removed it is. But then you have this, like, guy walking his dog in, like, the most normal thing in the world who sort of, like, interrupts that. And, like, that's... Like, it breaches that space where he, like, you know, this guy can't just, like, be spouting off his crazy poetry anymore. He's grounded back in the real world, and so he kills himself. Yeah. And then we do have a scene where uh, the man with the dog gets back to the RV park and tells Carl uh, yeah. what he saw. And uh, we point over to Becky's trailer and... We'll see where that goes. Yeah. All right. Then we have a scene at the Roadhouse where um, now we, we, we apparently see what the Roadhouse is doing when they don't have a band because the, the guy comes out and says, next on the Roadhouse favorites is Sharp Dressed Man by ZZ Top. And then he has this like crappy volume slider like handmade on it stage. It looks like a sixth grader made it. Yeah. And he like slides it all the way up. 
And then ZZ Top is playing on the speakers, and uh, James and his weird friend Freddy, yeah, with the man glove, with the go- with the golden hand or the green hand, I guess. Yes. technically. they come over to the woman Renee's table, the woman who has seemingly been taken by James and James yeah. by her a little bit. Uh, and James just says it's nice to see her, and then her boyfriend named Chuck freaks out and starts beating the shit out of James. Oi, says Freddy, and we get some very British stuff from him, and then punches the dude with the glove, knocking him flat. And what's great about this whole sequence is he punches two dudes out, and each time the music skips and stops for a beat with the action, and then resumes like it's being punched and affected by the punches. Like, yeah. like he's punching the soundtrack. Yeah, it's, yeah, like the punch is so powerful, it's like disrupting reality. Because also the sound effect that Lynch uses for the punch is really good. It gets the impact across remarkably well. Yeah. So, that's a scene. And, uh... You know, James tries to apologize, tells everyone to call 911. Renee is freaked out. I think everyone is yeah. a little bit. Although James is taking this all remarkably in stride. Yeah, he's got this very, like, cool way of just, like, he's he's very nice and considerate about the whole thing. It's like, someone need to call 911 because these guys are seriously hurt. Yes. Uh, we do a few scenes later cut to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department where Freddie and James are put in cells. This is what I was saying earlier. Uh, I think it's Freddie who winds up in cell 8. So, if that's oh. at all, <laughs> want to draw that in comparison. I mean, he, I mean, every single individual numeral has been, like, of, like, 1 through 9 or N0 have been showed at different points in Twin Peaks, so... I don't think he did it on accident. That doesn't mean that there's yeah. a huge, deep meaning to it. Anyway, um, we also have the Billy character here still bleeding from his face, and the weird, um, uh, the chattering woman. Yeah. Uh, who, in the captions, her name is apparently Nido. N-A-I-D-O. Yeah, I saw that in the, in the credits. Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, and James, again, mostly taking things in stride, just says, what the hell? And that's when we get the pan across the cells to the chattering woman reaching out, almost like she's feeling something, like energy in the air. Yeah. So, that's a scene. Uh, but, speaking of all that, um, in between all this, these scenes, we have some scenes in Vegas. Um, we go to the FBI and we get a fake out because we think we're going to see Douglas Jones, but it's clearly the wrong Douglas Jones because it's like a kids, kids, Wilson. What the fuck? <laughs> I love. He is maybe my favorite like random character in all of Twin Peaks: The Return. Is the Las Vegas FBI dude? Yeah. So He's really funny. They got the wrong Douglas Jones. Yeah. Kids. Um, Anyway, and then we cut to the pit boss guy, Mr. Something or Other, the, the, the villain through a lot of the Vegas yeah. stuff. I forget his name. Um, asking for Anthony, who's the guy who turned on him in the last episode with yeah. Dougie. Uh, so two episodes ago. And as this scene starts to play out, a woman walks in, blows the pit boss's head off, like yeah. very graphically, with a gun. And then shoots the other guy there. And then she's talking on the phone. And then here's one of the victims breathing heavily and goes... Yeah. She goes, shit, hold on. Goes back, gets out her gun, shoots him dead, and goes back. And says, yeah, one down, one to go. Yeah, french fries and extra ketchup. And I wrote, okay then. Yep. We later learn in another scene that this is Chantal, the yeah. uh, assassin lady who is with Tim Roth's character, Hutch. And they are in the car, in the van, eating, I assume, Wendy's, because they talked about that last yeah. time. Uh, talking about how it's okay to kill. It's the nation of killers. Killing all along. And Thou she- shalt kill. Says, but my fun's over when we actually kill someone. Can't torture a corpse. These characters are so clearly like characters from a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. David Lynch pulled out of that universe and put in his own. Like I think actually very like self-consciously. Like them and the Mitchum brothers. There's yeah. this whole segment of the Vegas stuff that feels very much like Lynch doing a weird Tarantino riff. But I love it. Um, 
And yeah, they, they, uh, she hates the little ketchup packs, but Hutch did get her dessert and says, I love you, Hutch. I love you, Chantel. And they look up in the sky and she says, that's Mars. So that's the end of that scene. Yeah. For whatever that was worth. It's the second most, well, third most romantic scene, you know. He didn't say, I I like fucking you. Jesus. All right. Uh, Meanwhile, at the real Dougie Jones' house with the red door, we finally get some more Dougie. We didn't get any last week. Uh, Janie is serving him a piece of chocolate cake, and she's like crouched down next to him, gazing upon him longingly, and he takes a bite very slowly. Is it delicious? Delicious. And then on the captions it says from Janie, pleased sigh, <laughs> which I think that's her autobiography is going to be called. Yeah. No. And she says, oh, Dougie, it's like all our dreams are coming true. And he says, true. And then... This is where I have to go meta with my notes, because I wrote something okay. here that I think is actually very important to the scene. As she stands up, I wrote in my notes, I hope he never wakes up and they just keep living happily like this. Which I think is a point you had gotten to a few episodes back. Yeah. But I think everyone at this... I think David Lynch and Mark Frost want you to say those words to yourself in that moment. And they want you to because of all moments for Tuggy Jones to wake up, it's this. Has he woken up? Something happens. Let's talk something, about it. Something definitely happens. So she goes to the kitchen, and then we have a long shot where he moves one shaker away from the other one. Which is the most outside of, because it's important to note, like, there's no, none of the weird lights or anything in this scene. Yeah. So that we have seen before, whenever Dougie has been proactive about something in the past, is because he's been explicitly guided by some light or a vision of Mike in the red room. And there's none of that in this scene. So this is the first time... In the entirety of Twin Peaks The Return, that without some sort of explicit supernatural guidance, Dougie Jones has had an initiative about literally anything. And, and, it's and it starts with him moving a fucking salt shaker a little bit to the right for no discernible reason whatsoever. Yep. And then he takes another bite of chocolate cake. And every time I say he takes another bite, it's like 30 seconds of yeah. film. And then there's this remote and he clicks on it. Nothing happens, so he takes another bite after a pause. Choose it, clicks again, nothing, another bite, another click. Finally it turns on and we're with Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and Mr. DeMille is talking about the old team. Nothing can stop us. Dougie stirs in some way. And then Mr. DeMille says, this zooms in on him, get Gordon Cole. And the moment we've all been waiting for to some degree, something like this, Dougie just panics. He freaks he pauses the movie. He's extremely proactive, yeah. as you would say. Um, and he hears this electrical crackling. From his POV, we look at the electrical outlet. And then Dougie gets down on the ground. And he looks like really shaken. And he's crawling towards the outlet. There's this faint scratching, that kind of hum that we hear with all the dark coop scenes. It kind of intensifies the closer he gets. And he has his fork from the chocolate cake. And he tries putting it in the outlet. Like a kid playing with it, almost. And this is the point of the episode where I was going, Dougie, Dougie, no, Dougie, stop, Dougie, don't. But he looks serious. He has purpose. He flips this fork around so it will fit from the, like, not the prong side, but the handle. Puts it in all the way and electrocutes the shit out of himself. In a horrifying sequence, Janie starts screaming and then all the lights go out and that's it. Yeah. So that's the scene. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see... What happens, like, what if the conclusion of that is just, he's dead? Like, he just electrocuted, like, there's nothing more. He just electrocuted himself to death. I don't think that'll be the case. I don't think that'll be the case either, but fucking dude, 
I've, we've said this before, I'll say it again, there, it is impossible to predict what the show is going to do. This is an episode composed entirely of scenes that feel like they should be the last scene of the episode. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because this feels like an important scene. But I love this scene. It, yeah. To me, it kind of recontextualizes a lot of the Dougie stuff for me. That this is one of those scenes where I, I, like I wrote, I felt like I hope Dougie never wakes up. And then he kind of does, to whatever degree you read that as. He has some recognition. He hears Gordon Cole and it's like, that's like all these things that have accumulated, that one shakes him. And his reaction is to go electrocute himself. Like he's resisting this call to come back to full awareness. Like that's to me one way you can read that scene is like, he sees that and he's like, no, I don't want to go back. Like mm. he seems so panicked. That's one thing I saw. And to me, it's like, there's a part of me that there's so much about this, like, lovely little life he and Janie have built together, or has been built around him, sure, you could yeah. say, is that maybe that's been happening all along. I would love to go back and watch all these scenes, you know, because there's every episode, there's some sign, some call where we think he's going to turn back into Cooper, and he doesn't. And I wonder if there's, like, there is a subconscious part of Cooper slash Dougie inside that's just like, no, I'm not waking up. This is working. We've got a good thing going on. And that's one way I read the scene. The other, there's another way, which is like, there's some, that's how he's going to wake up, is that he's going to go do that. I mean, that. because that's how he came into this world, was through yeah. an electrical outlet. And like, electricity has, I mean, how many times in your, like, notes have you had the word, like, electrical buzzing? Yes. And sound effects, you know, like, it's been a, like, persistent theme that I think has only intensified to the point of this episode, where it's like, it's really intense. It's a kind yeah. of constant thing in most of the episode. In any, like, the Evil Cube episodes, there are sections and stuff, you're getting this constant electrical buzzing, like, you're by like, high-voltage generators and stuff. And it, I think it's just part of the thematizing of technology in general. Because it's like, you know, it's that electric fire of the nuclear explosion that, yeah. that, that we're in. And so I, I, like it's, I think it's really hard to just take this scene and be able to kind of like understand exactly what is trying to be communicated by him jamming the fork into the outlet without the further context of where it's going to go. Because I think there are so many different ways you can interpret it of like what he's trying to accomplish. If he's even aware of trying to accomplish anything in that moment. I mean, so at this point, I would be a little surprised if we get into the next episode and he's just normal Dougie Jones again. I also wouldn't be surprised at all. So, sure, yeah. you know what like, I mean? Like, it could, I mean, there have been so many fake-outs, maybe this is just the greatest fake-out of all. So, who knows? But uh, that was a big moment yeah. for Mr. Douglas Jones. Because there's also a chance that like part of that scene is that maybe he was actually being guided by the Red Room and we just weren't party to that this time. Yeah. Like, it's, it's impossible to know what... What is going on in that head of his? That is absolutely true. Yeah. All right. Then we cut to uh, the log lady's house as yeah. we enter the saddest scene of the episode and maybe of Twin Peaks The Return because this is a hell of a scene. Yeah. So she makes a call and Hawk takes the call, asks what he can do for Margaret. And she says, Hawk, I'm dying. And he says, I'm sorry, Margaret. And she says, you know about death, that it's just a change, not an end. It's time. There's some fear, some fear in letting go. Remember what I told you. I can't say more over the phone. But you know what I mean from our talks when we were able to speak face to face. Watch for that one, the one I told you about, the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. Hawk, my log is turning gold. The wind is moaning. I'm dying. Good night, Hawk. And uh, that's it. Yeah. For Miss Margaret Lanterman and for uh, Catherine Coulson. Um, I had said when we met... Uh, the log lady in episode one of, of New Twin Peaks or saw her again that I would not be surprised if they kind of brought 
um, her death into the show in the way that Catherine Coulson was clearly on her deathbed when she shot these scenes. Right. And they have done that, and I, I always have to read out her speeches because they are such tremendously beautiful pieces of writing, and they are tinged with this extra melancholy and beauty of this woman, you know, lifelong friend of David Lynch, who is shooting these scenes. I think her scenes were shot for anything else for the return, um, basically on her deathbed, yeah. and now she, you know, kind of lives on through these images. And this was a particularly beautiful monologue. Um, Lynch shoots these scenes a little different, actually. Um, they're not just static shots like they are in the other sequences. We actually do move in on Margaret in a close-up, which we haven't really gotten before. And we also, on Hawk's desk, we get a little zoom as he starts to sort of realize what's going on. Even though Hawk yeah. is very stoic in this scene, um, it is shot a little different. Because he says, good night, Margaret, and then hangs up and says to himself, goodbye, Margaret. Yeah. And that's a way to do it. Yeah, I, one of my favorite details in this scene is that halfway through, um, she's not talking on the phone anymore. Like the phone is gone, and she's just talking. Um, and I think it, there's like a sound effect in one, like in a hawk shot, that maybe kind of implies she hung up the phone and maybe put it on speakerphone or something. I don't know, but I like the idea of like she doesn't need to talk on the phone in this yeah. moment. That like because again, there's been all this thematizing about technology and electricity and and how those things can be negative in a lot of ways and I like the idea of her in those final moments being able to sort of transcend that because she also says because it's after she's talking about um, you know when we were talking before like face to face when we weren't talking on the phone and, and, yeah. and getting past that barrier in some like spiritual way I think like I thought that was really effective it's it's amazing how well these scenes work given I mean clearly the Catherine Coulson scenes were shot probably months before Hawk's side of the conversation. Right. And so this is all edited together. It's a way to get the log lady in the show even though Catherine Coulson was not in condition to like be on set and all that stuff. And yet her presence has been felt so powerfully in these episodes. Like I think she's a more sort of like primary force in this series than she was in the original Twin Peaks to me. Like, yeah. like she was an, it was an interesting character that had some really standout scenes but the, like in a lot of ways, she has felt like the heart of Twin Peaks The Return because we have come, like, checked back in with her every four to five episodes. And, and it does feel like her, this being her, like, last appearance in her swan song because then you get the scene after where, you know, uh, Hawk confirms that she has passed away. Like, it feels like it is the appropriate time to sort of usher us into this last act along with, like, you know, juxtaposed with this, like inkling of like maybe this is where cooper is coming in like if like leaving the dougie body or something like that's where that is moving at the same time as she is passing on yeah it's be and there is another very poetic series of shots here after uh hawk hangs up where we cut to this half moon in a foggy sky the wind whooshes and then the clouds roll over the moon and they're gone and and again what a poetic piece of imagery yeah um yeah and then we do get the scene in the conference room where truman in a very weird technology moment, is on his laptop just looking at a picture of a fish. So that was weird. Oh, you do. Uh, but anyway, Bobby, Lucy, Andy all come in. Hawk told them to meet here. Uh, Hawk comes in and tells them that uh, Margaret Lanterman passed away tonight. And then Lucy says, the log lady's dead. And Lucy tears up and everyone's sad. And I think one of the most touching ones is actually Truman takes yeah. off his cowboy hat. And uh, it's, it's an interesting scene to me because, again, talking about moving into this last phase, you've got these five characters... They're gathered together in this little room, very dark. There's only like one light on. And it feels like, yeah, there's these five people united just trying to fight for what little light is still out there. But it does seem a lot darker right now. Yeah. And, yeah, just great. And then there is another 
terrific, terrific superimposition of the trees in darkness from above with Hawk's hanging head over them. Yeah. So Hawk hangs his head at the end of that scene in sadness, and the trees are superimposed over him. One of my favorite images in all of Lynch's career. Yeah. So, holy hell. Uh, then we do get the Audrey scene, and I will say, I don't know if this felt fully at place after the Log Lady stuff and into the Roadhouse stuff. There probably had to be something to get us from that moment to the next one. But I don't know. I mean, clearly, like, all this Audrey stuff is probably happening on the same night. It's still very weird and inscrutable. Right. There hasn't really been any forward momentum. I'm interested to see where it goes. I don't know if tonally it felt at home here. I don't know. I I thought it felt good to me. I, okay. I think there's something so... Like, the Audrey stuff is a subplot, I think, that is actually, like, the most sort of sinister in it. Because you can't put your finger on what is quite going on there. But I think it is, like, in some ways, the most stark portrayal of abuse in the entire show is yeah. that more than it is like you know Dick Horn coming in and brutalizing his family it's like this relationship where Audrey Horn is clearly like extremely distressed by everything that's going on here she's clearly being gaslighted like like and manipulated by this guy Charlie that we know nothing about and he has this like there's almost a quality to those scenes if that like in the last episode of Twin Peaks it's like Charlie is somehow the like he's the villain of Twin Peaks or like whatever the fuck that would mean. There's almost something about him that I could like because also we are so trapped in that room with Audrey that we have no idea she can't leave. She like is on this moment of like trying to leave and then Charlie psychologically manipulates her into convincing herself to back off. I mean, and, how surprised would you be if that's not even in reality and she's if, dead or something? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Like, like we have no idea what's outside of that yeah. room. And there's something about that. It's so displaced. Because it's also displaced in time because it feels like all of these things that she's... Like, like all those scenes are taking place right next to one another. We just keep on revisiting them yeah. in what feels like it's out of sequence. But no, it's and, impossible to know. And I, I agree 100%. Like, thematically, this stuff is so important to Twin Peaks The Return as a whole. Yeah. I just don't know if tonally the cut from Log Lady Death this into the end. I almost felt like this, this does, I think, belong in the episode thematically. I might have put it earlier in the episode. It's fine either way. It's yeah. still... I agree, because whatever's happening here does feel very thematically important and probably at some point narratively important because we did get the Audrey Horn name check in this episode from yeah. Dick Horn. Um, so that's, yeah. But this was another, as you say, like the gaslighting. Someone did a really interesting thing on Twitter where they pointed out in, in the first scene with Charlie yeah, and Audrey, Charlie says, what, I don't have a crystal ball because he's talking about like predicting the future. He literally on his desk, there's a crystal ball. Yeah. And you kind of have to zoom in to see it, but that's like, what a detail. <laughs> yeah, it's just, he's... Because it's such a weird journey because at first, like, I was always kind of put off by him, but I thought, like, he was just a weird guy in the first scene. And then now we're at this point where, like, this dude is fucking evil. Like, there's something about him. But again, it's it's almost like the point of it is that you can't point it out. You can't... Well... There's no one thing because he... And, like, the, like, literal moment to moment, he is the more rational person in those scenes. Like, like Audrey is the one that seems like she is completely hysterical but it, but you get this subtext that like she's hysterical because of what this guy is doing to her, and you know it, here's how you know Twin Peaks is great. It gets better the more you talk about it. Yeah, and I, I think I can talk myself into why this is this is the cut is because what I just said earlier about that idea of these five people gathered together fighting for what little light is left in the world, and then we cut to this abject darkness yeah. of Audrey's life. And yes, it is horrifying and off-putting, and I think it is 100% intentionally all of those things. 
So yes, I think maybe yeah. that cut does make sense. As we because I get... think it serves as a nice transition into the sure. last scene, and also like there's a reason we don't go out on the log lady because there is there's no time to grieve for that. There's all these yeah. other things going on, literally for the characters, figuratively for the audience. Yeah, and then we do have the roadhouse scene, which we already kind of broke down. Um, one notice, one thing I noticed is with all the images of people dwarfed by trees in this episode and the superimpositions of trees, like the one we just got with Hawk, the way where she's lo- the scene where you know she's yeah. crawling lost among the legs, they look like trees to me. Like she's yeah. lost in a forest. There but is it's particularly like as that it keeps on cutting back to that shot, and like there's more people surrounding her, it becomes more and more like that of like because it, it gets to a point where it's like absurd on a literal level of like there's no like people would not be standing in that way but it does create this overall effect of her being lost in this forest of people yep and then this episode ends on a a smash cut to black and then starring Kyle MacLachlan and then the credits come up as we fade into that image of the motel from earlier where we do get the weird woman man thing at the very end yeah there's like a weird cut right at the end of the, the credit sequence and there's a playful little thing here where uh, Catherine Coulson got her dedication in episode one um, with everyone who appeared there who had, had passed on. Um, but here it says, in memory of Margaret Lanterman. Yeah. Which I thought was nice. Yeah, me too. Just a weird little note to go out on. So that is Twin Peaks Part 15. It was a hell of an episode, man. Hell of an episode. And it makes me really curious to see what the next episode is going to be. Like, I, in some ways, I would be in no way surprised if we don't even see Dougie at all next episode. It would kind of fit with what's happened, the, yeah. la- the way the pace has worked out. But no, I, you know, we're, we're so near the end, and it does feel like, it's not like the pace of the show has changed, but it feels like there's such weight to everything that's happening. Yeah. I think, I don't think there's going to be any downtime between here and the end. I think... Yeah. Next week, we are probably going to set up for whatever is in the finale, which probably is those two hours are meant to air together for a reason. Right. So, yeah, I am very excited. I can't believe we're almost at the end. It's been a a damn journey, dude. It has been. I'm so glad we've gotten to talk about all of it. Remember back in, like, the first one we did, the first podcast talking about the first four episodes, and us being like, I wonder how long he's going to be Dougie Jones. (laughs) Like, we were so naive then. So naive just wondering about the structure of this thing. Yeah. I mean, this is just... We keep saying it, and we will, in two weeks, that will probably be the only topic of the podcast. We'll be putting yeah. this all together. But, man, uh, this is one of the great things I've ever seen in film, television, whatever. Yeah, so. it's it's unbelievable. So, we will be back next week. Uh, our main topic next week will be a review of Uncharted The Lost Legacy. Right, yeah, I need to get that. All right, so I'm excited to play it. You're excited to play it. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Twin Peaks. We'll talk about whatever else comes up. Halo Episode 6 on Friday. Yeah. 6 through 10 are on Patreon. More is coming out. All this good stuff. We got that Doctor Who bonus podcast. Another one coming next month. Good stuff on the horizon. Absolutely. Hats off to you, Log Lady. <laughs>